The views and opinions expressed by the individuals in the following program do not necessarily reflect those of its producers, Metaphor Creative Media, its management, or affiliates. Police officers were witness to some of the most amazing things in life. Some comical, some horrendous, and some just plain miraculous. When asked why you went into law enforcement, most officers will tell you because it's like having a front row seat to the greatest show on earth. Today, we saved you a front row seat. This is Observations. From Broadcast Beat Studios in Oakland Park, Florida, Metaphor Creative Media presents a show that gives you a personal glimpse of what law enforcement officers see and do in their typical and not-so-typical day of work. From walking the beat to detective, Rob has 35 years of law enforcement experience. Although the staff are all active or former law enforcement, any views, opinions, and all other show content are in no way official views, statements, or policies of any law enforcement agency. To talk to our host, call the podcast studio toll-free at 888-511-COPS. That's 888-511-2677. Hello again, and welcome to Copservations, your front-row seat to the greatest show on earth. My name is Anthony. I'm one of the show's creators and producers. Uh, tonight, we thought we'd have Rob back, um, but unfortunately, something else came up yesterday, and he had to uh, get that taken care of right away, so... Once again, you'll be sitting here listening to me, fortunately or unfortunately, however you want to think about it. Um, joined tonight by the show's co-host and Rob's partner in crime, Gary Dickinson. <laughs> Gary, thanks for being here tonight. Hey, bud. How you doing? And unfortunately, you got to put up with me again one more. One more night. One more episode, but I, we, did, we did good last week. I yes, think we did. We'll get over it. We'll get over it. As uh, has been the case the past couple of episodes, uh, having to host the show, unfortunately, provides me uh, the opportunity to sit here, but rips me from the con- comfort of the control room where Danny is. Hi, Danny. <laughs> it's way more comfortable without you in here. <laughs> already. We just started the show. We're not two minutes in, and he's already. Uh, on the other hand, it makes things kind of fun because Danny has to do triple the work. While we purposely try to drive him crazy. Right, Gary? We could do that tonight. Oh, cool. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> Best thing about it is we get to watch and laugh through these huge glass viewing windows that I installed a while ago as it all unfolds. <laughs> uh, in case you didn't know, our show is broadcast live every Thursday night at 7 p.m. Eastern on the Copservations Facebook page, a YouTube channel, and now the Copservations Twitter page at Copservations underscore from the Broadcast Beat Studios located in Oakland Park, Florida. And here on Copservations, we attempt to give you a personal glimpse of what law enforcement officers go through on a daily basis. We'll also talk about recent events, happenings, and the latest hot topics pertaining to law enforcement that not only affects officers, but you, the general public, as well. If you have any comments, questions, or a story you'd like to share, join the conversation by giving the podcast studio a call toll-free at 888 888- 511 cops 
That's 888-511-2677. And you can also instant message your questions and comments live on our Facebook uh, page, the Cops Evasions Facebook page. Make sure you instant message. Don't comment uh, on the page in the comment section. Send us an instant message, and um, and we'll try to answer them live on the uh, on the broadcast tonight. Uh, before we start sh- tonight's show, we want to let our listeners know that uh, we're going to be off the next week for Thanksgiving for the Thanksgiving holiday, as well as some uh, show planning, upgrading preparations, and uh, advances for the future show expansion, which we're planning on doing, which is really cool. It's pretty exciting. Um, we're also thinking that the Christmas holiday, with that approaching quickly, it might uh, have some scheduling conflicts. So we'll work that out. Um, and we'll make some decisions as to when the best date is to resume regularly scheduled broadcasting. We'll keep you we'll keep you posted. So keep checking back with us on all of our social media pages, and we'll let you know. And plus, that should give Rob plenty of time <laughs> to get back up to full speed and uh, and back on the air. What do you think? No more excuses. <laughs> yeah, he's got. I'm giving him a a full like almost month to to finish up whatever he's got to do, and then he's got to come back. I think we, Gary. I think Gary's, him. Getting, Gary's getting tired of me. Otherwise, otherwise, I'm going to have to have Danny uh, do these promos where they say now back to Anthony <laughs> instead of now yeah, back to Rob. I don't Robert. think you want me to do that. No, okay. Yeah, I don't. I definitely don't. I don't want to be sitting here if I don't have to. We're going to have to force Gary. Gary, you, if this happens again, you're I'll, it. But I'll host the show. You're it. You're no it. Problem. Okay. The last week, just don't be on your phone the whole time. No, I want a pay raise. <laughs> remember when we thought he was sleeping that one time when he first came? <laughs> remember that, Gary? Yeah, and I was reading the thing for that Rob was. He's he kept trying to get my attention. I'm going, what? <laughs> it was funny. We thought he was sleeping on the job. Last week's topic was interacting with the police, where Gary and I talked uh, about police officers interacting with the public during certain circumstances and the public's uh, interaction and reactions during contact or certain encounters with police officers. If you missed last week's episode, uh, Interacting with the Police, or any of our other episodes, you can catch up on the show by watching Copservations on the Copservations podcast channel located on our Metaphor Creative Media YouTube page. And that's where you'll find all of our previous episodes. Some of them are pretty uh, amusing, especially Richie's. I love Richie's. Uh, tonight's topic is law enforcement's battle with drugs and the addiction epidemic. Uh, our guest is a retired criminal investigator, instructor, and supervisor for the U.S. Department. Uh, I'm sorry, for the U.S. Drug Enforcement Agency. Uh, he's a former police officer with the Deerfield Beach Police Department and sergeant with the Broward County Sheriff's Office. Uh, he's also a keynote speaker on personal security, an author of two books, and a private investigator. Uh, our guest is Gary Kaufman. Gary, welcome to the show. Thank Good you evening. for joining us tonight. Thanks for having me. It's uh, it's a pleasure to have you, Gary and I. Uh, we have the pleasure of knowing each other, not uh, necessarily in this forum, but uh, Gary and I go back a little ways, um, and we met up in a uh, uh, in part of a production group where you would do live reads of screenplays that were people brought to the table, and we were part of a group um, where you would do these live screenplays, and Gary and I. I think we, we had decided maybe we wanted to do something a little bit different, and we tried to split off and do our own thing, but you got uh, busy with your... Well, you'd produced a couple of very good episodes that I'd seen, um, 
and I thought maybe we could do something together, but then this business just took off. And right, right. I've been, it's been swamped ever since, so. Thanks for that. I appreciate that. Well, yeah, tonight, it's been, tonight, me and him are going to take over the show. <laughs> oh, that's fine. We're going to call it Gary and Gary. There you go, Gigi. And then I can go, I guess, finish <laughs> eating my last wing. Or <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, but, Gary, uh, you know, I knew you. Uh, when I met you, uh, you explained to me briefly, you know, your background and stuff. But, you know, after reading your background, I mean, your bio, it's, it's quite a quite a uh, resume you got going there I've been lucky I've been very blessed I I don't take any of that for granted I've been it's been quite a quite a wild ride so very good yeah it's very impressive it's, it's a very impressive background and you've man of tra you've traveled obviously uh, all around and it's uh, like I said very good uh, bio background very impressive uh, as is custom with the show's format um, I'd like to touch some recent events and news pertaining to law enforcement and then discuss these events a little bit more in depth for just a bit before we move on to tonight's topic. Uh, first up is uh, a story out of Florida. Like they say, they don't call it Florida for nothing. Uh, it kind of fits tonight's topic, and so um, I'll touch on this. I'll touch on a couple of stories, and then we'll go back and we'll review them in, in more detail. A 380-pound Florida man used his belly button to stash a bag of meth. <laughs> The man was arrested early Saturday after he reportedly showed up to a McDonald's in Clearwater with a drug-filled needle. Investigators arrived and found a 28-gauge needle on the man, and he was charged with possession of methamphetamines. Uh, in another story in Georgia, a uh, Richmond County uh, deputy was shot and killed Tuesday night while conducting a routine patrol with a narcotics unit in Augusta. The deputy investigator, Cecil Ridley, was fatally injured at a gas station at 8.30 p.m. After, eight, after officers encountered several people at an Augusta Mart gas station when gunfire erupted. An officer from inside the store and a third officer in the parking lot returned fire striking the gunman, and he was taken to the hospital where he is being treated. And finally, uh, in Miami-Dade, back to Florida again, which is this is a pretty good, pretty touching story that we'll, we'll talk about a little a homeless father uh, approached officers at a bus depot and got more than he had asked for. He told the officers that he, his wife, and four children had recently moved from Michigan in hopes of him finding a job as a cook, but the family had been kicked out of a relative's home uh, and had nowhere to go. The family of six headed to the bus depot with everything that they own in garbage bags where the officers made some calls and found a local shelter uh, and a room for the family, which was, that was, that was pretty neat. I, I love stories like that. They probably got him a job, too, after that. You never know. So let's dig a little further into those stories. Uh, uh, the 380-pound man who used his belly button to stash a bag of meth. Uh, Martin Skelly. Doesn't make him a bad person. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, Martin Skelly, 41, of St. Petersburg, was busted early Saturday after he reportedly showed up to a McDonald's in Clearwater with a drug-filled needle. Why didn't he use it? I don't know. A drug field. Why didn't he shoot the stuff? Get it over with. Maybe he took part and was saving part for later. You know, is it a crime? Too? Maybe. I didn't know we couldn't bring drug filled needles into McDonald's. Uh, I never seen a sign. I mean, I saw no smoking, no shoe, you know, no shoes, no service, but no needles. You'd think that would go unstated. It doesn't necessarily need to be. You'd hope anyway. I saw a sign on a bar one time said, "No shoes, no service, no shit." 
Sorry, uh, sorry. I just lost okay. my head. So investigators went to the scene and they found a 28-gauge needle on Skelly. He was charged and arrested for possession of methamphetamine. Police searched Skelly before he was booked at the Pinellas County Jail. Before he was transported, authorities had asked Skelly if he had any more contraband on him, warning him that he could face additional charges if more drugs were found on him at the jail. Skelly said no, the affidavit said. And I'm all white. And I'm all white. <laughs> it doesn't matter. So, Want uh, me to read it from here? No, I got it. Okay. It's good. I got it on my phone, so. <laughs> I think that's the end of it anyway. Is it? Yeah, that's when you thought I was falling asleep. <laughs> uh, anyway, the um, I don't need your assistance, Danny. Thank you. <laughs> uh, Too bad. The methamphetamines in the belly button. I mean, that's, I don't think I've ever had uh, a prisoner try to hide contraband in their belly button. That's because you never arrested a guy with 380 pounds. Well. Can you imagine how much he was hanging over his belt? I mean, I'm just saying. That couldn't have been pleasant. Yeah, that. Uh, Could you imagine the guy that had to, like, search? Do that search? How exactly. did you know to search that? I mean. Well, you know, I mean, cracks and crevices. But like I say, you talk about an unpleasant job. You're talking about a bag, a little baggy of it. I mean, well, I don't know. Maybe he told him to jump up and down until it fell out. I don't know. Well, we, I mean, we've all arrested people and, and found contraband stashed in. Well, sure. Like, unpleasant places, but uh, but the belly button, that's that's a first, I believe. Yeah. And and you know how sensitive your belly button is when you stick your finger in there and try to clean lint out and stuff, don't I mean, you know, you get that tickly feeling. I mean, here's here's a, I don't know what you're talking about. Here's a question for you. <laughs> yeah, that's too much information. Yeah, really. Here's a question TMI. for you. Yeah, way past TMI. Here's a question for you. I wonder if the, the meth in the belly button has the same negative consequences that a smuggler swallower has when the balloon bursts. You know, we've all... You mean if it actually makes contact? Because technically, I mean... Yeah. I mean, he could absorb it through the skin, kill him right on the spot. Hypothetically. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, but there's more of a chance in the intestines because... You, I would think. The de yeah. You know, the degrading of the material and then... Have you ever seen him die from, like, cocaine in their intestines? Uh, no. Oh, bud, it's not a pretty sight. No, it's not pleasant. No, I remember uh, actually having to go to the hospital because I guess they, I think they called them mules. Um, um, actually, had ingested like seven or nine condoms full of coke. Yep. And they actually actually had to pass them. And I I thought that's the craziest thing that I ever heard of. If yeah. Well, if they break before they pass them. That's all she wrote. It's done. Right there on the spot. Finished. That's crazy, though. Dirt. Dead right there. They start having DRT, seizures yeah. and everything DRT. else. It's like quick. Yeah, I heard some, something about that. I mean, I don't know. Uh, it's just very weird. So um, we'll move on to the next story in Georgia, uh, which is, I hate hearing these stories, and they're, they're just getting way too often, and almost daily we're seeing something about officers being attacked or shot or killed, shot and killed or but uh, a Richmond County deputy was shot and killed Tuesday night while conducting a routine patrol on a narcotics unit. Uh, I'm sorry, with a narcotics unit in Augusta. The deputy investigator, Cecil Ridley, was fatally injured at a gas station on the corner of 12th Street and Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard. Uh, Sergeant William McCarthy with the Richmond County Sheriff's Office told uh, reporters. Uh, 
Ridley's were, Ridley was conducting proactive patrols to curb gun violence, go figure, in the area, which began last week. McCarthy said gunfire erupted about 8.30 p.m. after officers encountered several people at the Augusta Mart gas station. Ridley's suspected shooter was identified by the Georgia Bureau of Investigation as 24-year-old Alvin Theodore Hester Jr., according to the GBI. Another officer first tried to confront Hester inside the gas station, and Hester turned to leave. He allegedly shot Ridley as he was walking through the front doors. GBI special agent in charge, Pat Morgan, said in the news release, the other officer returned fire as Hester continued out into the parking lot where he was confronted again. Both the officer from inside the store and an officer in the parking lot fired at him, striking him. Uh, Ridley, who was unable to return fire, later died of his injuries, and Hester was taken to Augusta University Medical Center where he was undergoing treatment Wednesday morning. Uh, Officer Ridley, uh, 51 years old, is the third Georgia law enforcement officer killed by gunfire in 2019 and the seventh to die in the line of duty. And nationally, he is the 108th officer killed in the line of duty this year, according to the Officer Down Memorial page which tracks law enforcement deaths in the U.S. It's unclear how long Ridley worked at the sheriff's office, but he received awards in 2018 for five years of service. Uh, Governor Brian Kemp took to Twitter to offer his condolences and asked Georgians to join us in praying investigator Ridley's loved ones. He gave his life to protect and serve, as we all do. Well, we don't give our lives, but we all do it to protect and serve. That's why we we took the job. Um, And losing him in the line of duty is heartbreaking, Kemp said. May God give his community comfort in this difficult time. Tuesday night incident in the, is the 77th officer-involved shooting investigation that the Georgia Bureau of Investigation has opened this year. And the second one this week. Our hearts are with the family, blood, and blue of Investigator Cecil Ridley, who paid the ultimate sacrifice in the line of duty, the state agency said in a tweet. We thank you for your service and will continue to pray for your family, friends, and the Richmond County Sheriff's Office. I... <sighs> I know you guys are feeling the same thing, I, I, and I don't need to say, say it or ask you how you feel, because we all feel... It's just tragic and unnecessary. And as we you know, go on through the show, we're going to talk more about the fact that situations like this emerge out of the violent environment that open-air drug markets created 20, 30 years ago, and... The violence that's going on in all these major metropolitan areas is a direct result of the drug epidemics that this country has gone through. Uh, Tragic and unnecessary. I pray for his family. Yeah, it's absolutely crazy. I mean, nobody even worries about the consequences anymore. I mean, there is no... I don't want to say law enforcement only almost doesn't mean anything to anybody anymore, but it's like, do you not think about that when, I mean... It's just, I don't know. It's it's happening almost every day. Well, worse. What, what is what is what's getting in the minds of these people where they think they think it's okay to get out, confront officers, <clears throat> whether it's you know whether you have an issue with it, you know, pulling you over or you know what or whatever it is, you confront them, you know, when we're there doing our job. I mean, well, the fact of the matter is, we're regarded as the enemy. We're because we're in in those neighborhoods making drug arrests, we're making gun arrests. We're seen as the enemy, and it's it's unfortunate, and but it's a cultural thing. I'm afraid it's that's 
I don't know where we're, how we're going to come back from it, to tell you the truth. I've had a lot of conversations with a lot of people on this topic, and don't even get me started on the deterioration of Western society, but the, when law enforcement loses the respect of the community that they serve, we can no longer go into those neighborhoods and enforce the law, then somebody's going to take those neighborhoods over. Right. It's going to be the criminals. Right, right. But, well, I have a right here, uh, 106 uh, officers you said were... Uh, who, 109 line of duty deaths this year. Right. Line of duty deaths last year was 166. To be honest with you, I thought the 109 was going to be a lot higher. Of course, it's not the year's not over yet. Right. I know that might sound ridiculous, but if you look at this, <clears throat> the line of duty deaths in 2019, and this is, this is uh, can you get this? Oh my. Danny? I don't know if you can get this, but. Yeah, uh, give me a second. Well, let me throw another most go, Most deaths were by gunfire. Next thing was auto, and then the last category is other. And according to this graph, gun, gunfire is a lot higher this year compared to the other years because the others have caught up to the gunfire right. line. Right. Does, right it here we go. does it mention how many ambushes involved these? That's, that's one of the things that's has to be factored into it. The fact of the matter is a lot of the line of duty deaths from gunfire right. were the result of ambushes of the police officers. Exactly. Yeah, last year was a very bad year for that, if I, rem if I remember. Last year was, was a very bad year. And you, and I guess what I'm trying to say is, and, and Gary Gary is, uh, is a survivor of, you know, his brother's life was taken by a criminal also. And... Back then, when it occurred, not that it may, not that it makes it any better, but back then when it happened, <clears throat> it was an outrage. I mean, it was, it didn't happen every day back then, you know. And when it did happen, I mean, it was, it first of all because it was unheard of. It was, it was very shocking to the community, and everybody was, you know. And now, it, it just, it's like it's, it, you know, when it happens. Oh, so a cop was shot. I mean. It's I'm just become an old hat now. It is but back back in '89 when my brother was killed, it was on the news for well over a week, all day. I mean, every news thing in Palm Beach County was about him and what happened and the guy that did it. And right. they went on. I mean, and they they really paid. Uh, I have to say, the news media paid a nice tribute to my brother back in those days. I don't know if they do that now, but yeah, but but still, like I said, back then it was very shocking to. Yeah, I mean, even to me, I mean, when you heard about it, you know, you would stop and think, you know, now it's it's like an everyday occurrence. And it's like Gary said, it's like an old hat. It's like, all right, a cop was shot. Let's move on. It's almost like it's not a big deal anymore. With the And I hate to say it, but it's almost that way with us. But when I see, you know, most of the, I get my notifications on Facebook and because of my brother and, you know, I think it affects me more, but. I just make a sad face. I don't even write anything that much because I just write the same stuff over and over. And yeah. it's just, it's heartbreaking for me to see, especially these young cops with the young family and babies and kids and, and the wife just, that's it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's very commonplace, like my sister just said on there. It is. It's very, very commonplace. It's, you know, and like you said, Gary, I mean, even we're becoming numb to it, which is a shame. Which is a real shame. It's really a shame. <clears throat> so and here you have a guy who's out there specifically fighting the gun violence and going out there to target it and he is 
ends up getting taken down by the same exact thing that he's well i hate to say it but that's inevitable we go into these neighborhoods to try to enforce the drug laws enforce the gun laws try to stop the violence and we'll go into it more in the show but you know that's what we're there for is yeah. to to, yeah. to try to do some good <clears throat> yeah, but unfortunately absolutely. there's going to be casualties that's why i'm i'm so glad you're here tonight because this is going to be a big uh the big discussion the connection the drugs the i mean things are getting so out of control with the drugs and the opioid <clears throat> addictions and all this other stuff so i really am very glad that you came down gary came down from Titusville. Titusville. I know. He told me. the show tonight, which is which is awesome. I can't thank him enough. I can't get guys to walk across the street and listen to me. <laughs> <laughs> but That's you know, uh, I'm grateful for the invitation, part, guys. I was going to throw a joke in there, but yeah. I lost the opportunity. Go ahead, guys. <laughs> it's, it's part of what we were saying and what he said, too. Is, you know, I don't want to get into the politics, but look at Chicago. 90% of that is drug-related, I'm sure. Most of it is gang members. They're a huge, huge murder rate there. Yeah. Every yeah, weekend, do. dozens of people are getting murdered and killed and shot and wounded, right. and and the cops up there are just fighting their butts off for almost nothing. Yeah. And then they will not ask the president for help. And the only way to really get this under control is to send in, I, I don't know who, the FBI, someone to go in there. But they, get, they talked about sending in the National Guard. You're going to take these guys off yeah, the street? You can't, you, you can't do you that. Can't They'll get killed, them. murdered. That's, that's not the reason. No, but, but somebody has to go in and help Chicago. Or, but God forbid they were to ask for help from the federal government. Yeah, you know? I know. I know. It's crazy. Anyway, uh, in f- last story before we move on. Uh, in Florida, again, it's not on a, an uncommon sight. A man down on his luck asking for help at a city bus depot. People might avoid him or give him some spare change. Either way, he's often treated with suspicion. Recently, a homeless man approached several Miami-Dade police officers who routinely patrol a travel hub near the city's airport, and the situation played out much differently. He told the officers that he and his wife and four children had recently moved from Michigan in hopes of him finding a job as a cook, but the family had been kicked out of a relative's home. With nowhere to go, the family of six headed to the bus depot with all their belongings in plastic bags. I saw his wife holding a two-month-old. I saw the other kids and just immediately thought to myself, wow, we have to help them, Officer Jose de Leon recalled. De Leon and fellow officers Roberto Ascoy, Isabel Soto, Duane Wilhelm, and Scott McBath, all moms and dads themselves, reached into their pockets and came up with nearly $200 to help the family. We've all done things like this. I know I've done that several times in my career. And... Even that little bit, you know, brings a little bit of joy to Some good. You're doing some good. Uh, Being a new mother herself, Willem couldn't fathom a newborn sleeping in the bus station. I had just taken out the money that morning, and I just gave it all up, Willem said. But the officers didn't stop there. After giving the family money from their pockets, they made some calls and found a local shelter with room for the family of six. The police officers even drove them there. It took three units to carry everybody and their belongings, McBath said. The man and his wife were extremely grateful and expressed their gratitude, the officer said. The family eventually made it back to Michigan with the money from the officers and assistance from the shelter. The officers who regularly patrol Miami-Dade in the international airport area um, and have a combined 80 years of law enforcement experience said that they see themselves as city ambassadors as well as cops. 
I don't think any of us here consider ourselves heroes, as Goy said. We're doing our job. At the end of the day, that's what we signed up for. That's what we, that's what we swore to do, to, to do right in the community, which is what we all uh, signed up to do when we, when we took the job. So shameless plug, one of the books I wrote was uh, Getting Started in Law Enforcement, A Career That Counts. And one of the lines in the book is, there's 100,000 episodes across this country every day where police officers engage somebody in need and they do good quietly. It doesn't make the press. It, it's, it betters one life or two lives at a right. time and no fanfare involved. But there's hundreds of thousands of episodes like that per week where officers are out in the street doing the right thing and, and taking care of people. But unfortunately, that's not what makes the media these days. It's only when a police officer makes a mistake. Right, and we, and we don't do that because we, you know, we, it's not that we're, we expect that to happen. We, we do don't it do it just for a pat so we on get the back. The pat, you know, yeah, we don't even tell anybody back. most of the time. Right. right. No one knows, no one knows, the, no one's the wiser about it having happened. Yeah. We just do what, and, and like I say, hundreds of thousands of episodes like that every day um, across this country. Every day. I mean, we just had a, we had a guest the, the last two shows, uh, Hamsey, he, he bought a trick, uh, uh, airfare for a trip back to Jamaica for a woman who was just trying to get home. The thing is, like I said, we're not looking for the pat on the back. What we are looking for is for people to understand that during that one time that somebody happens to have a bad day or the bad apple is exposed in our, in our uh, career, we get a break. It's not all of us. You know, it happens everywhere. There are bad ha apples in every profession. So we're just, we just ask that we all not be tied to the one bad apple or the bad day when somebody's having a bad day or, do, <clears throat> you know, and that's all it is. I, d I saw this. Well, I got I to gotta say one more thing. <clears throat> um, a shout out to my old um, mentor, Captain Lee Magnuson from Deerfield Police Department. My first year on a job way back in the day, Christmas time rolls around, no fanfare, no big deal. He, at the time, West Deerfield was basically agricultural, and yeah. there was a couple of migrant camps out there. Yeah, you're right. Pompano Labor Camp was in Pompano. Same thing. <clears throat> and Captain Magnuson brought this big box, toys and, you know, some food and whatever. He says, Kaufman, drive this out to the uh, migrant. There's eight or ten migrant sheds out there people lived in. And... Uh, you know, he he wasn't looking for any recognition right. for that. That, right. that was his his yeah. way of reaching out to the community, and and that tradition, like I say, I think uh, has been going well, on for it, a long time. It's a lot of the things we do is just because it's, it's the, right the right thing, thing to, to do. do. Exactly. That's why we do it. Exactly. You know, so <clears throat> that there's no uh, underlying, you know, motive. Or motive. Yep. Intentions. It's, it's just because it's the right thing to do. You know, and I, I, I'll go a step further. I think that's what keeps most of us on the job. Um, for all the negative stuff that goes on, getting a chance to help somebody, getting a chance to do some yeah. good is what keeps you in there for 20, 25 years. Yeah, so. yeah. I would say so. Right, Gary? Yep. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> his nose buried in his I was thinking of something funny, but I'm not going to say it. Uh, only because we're on too warm of a... Too warm and fuzzy. Level. No, Come on, man. Give it. No, I just don't <laughs> want to say it in public. <laughs>
<clears throat> before we move into the topic, which is a very big one, and I know you're, with your history and everything, I know how, uh, how much it means to you to get this topic out and discuss it. Um, before we do that, we like to know our guests. So uh, I hope you don't mind, but we're going to ask you a few questions first. That's fine. Introduce no you to uh, to the audience. Let them know who you are. Yeah, we'll I know who you take are. Take your fingerprints and <laughs> quick, you know, yeah. picture. But facial so. recognition, run me through the databases. <laughs> yeah, exactly all that. Been there, done that. Oh, we know that guy. That's Gary. Well, if there was a prior to, what did you do prior to getting into law enforcement? I got to be honest with you. There wasn't much of a prior to. I knew I wanted to be a cop when I was sixteen. I started off as an explorer at Pompano PD, um, rode with them until I graduated high school. Got a job at 20 with Deerfield Police Department, like you, starting off as a dispatcher, actually answering phones on the midnight shift. Um, and I did that for a couple of years, uh, late seven. I'm not going to date myself, but <laughs> at some point I got put in a police academy and um, you know, the rest, as they say, is history. I've been uh, I've been doing this for a very long time. I still love it. I still believe in it. Yeah. And um, so that's how I got my start. I, you know, I I knew early on what I wanted to do. So you knew very early on, but why, I mean, why was there like a uh, just curious, or were you were you mesmerized? Were you was it's, it a? It's hard to tell. I mean, the fact of the matter is, it was kind of an epiphany. Prior to. My 16th birthday, uh, nobody would have foreseen that I was going to go into law enforcement. Or mine. Uh, yeah. They, they might have suspected other vocations, in fact. Um, no one else in my family has ever been a cop. I, that was my next question. Nobody? No. no. I'm the first, you know. And um, and what was, your, what was your interaction with police prior to you knowing that you wanted to, like, was, did you ever have any or... Well, I had several interactions with the police. That was part of the problem. And so, <laughs> uh, you know, so in, in point of fact, thinking back on it, that probably greatly influenced my decision to get into police work. Wow. Um, I'm trying to remember his name, old school Pompano cop. Uh, he kind of kept track of me and my little gang, you know, and every time he'd see us out on the street, you know, he'd call us over and whatever. And, but not, not in a hard way. He just, you know... You knew he was paying attention, yeah. you know, right. and I admired that. Very good. And um, I guess that's what led me to get into the explorers and so forth. Very good. So, uh, in in all your years, what do you think you you like the most about the job about law enforcement? What did you like the most? Well, I don't want to get too far down in the weeds, but I've always regarded police work as a ministry. Um, you know, Romans chapter thirteen. There you go. You know. Um, yep. You know, it's it a says calling. for he is the minister of good. No, he's the minister of good to thee. I can't even think of it now. Yeah, to those he, who do evil, he, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain. Right, he does that's not it. carry the sword in vain, and that's always been my charter chapter, um, and it's inspired everything, everything, my entire career. So, you know, I, it's a calling, and yeah. just like you know. Yep, definitely. Medicine or whatever. So, so, so on the flip side of that, what, uh, what was, what really did you not like about the job? What did you like the least about the job? Well, you know, there are times when you have to engage the public in negative interactions because they're doing something stupid, and our job is to stop stupid. Um, am I wrong? Yeah, that's right. And um, 
you know, we're that thin blue line that stands between the predators and the prey. Uh, very often the prey is oblivious to the threat. Right. Very often, in fact, they, they take for granted what we do or assume we do something other than protect them. And so that disconnect with the people that we're trying to protect has always been the, the thing I had the hardest time with. And one of those things is, is the difference between firefighters and us was we're always the guys that have to tell people, no, you can't do that. Or we deliver the bad news when somebody dies. Exactly. We're not you the know, good guys. We're, we're not the good always guys. tell them you can't do what you want to do all the time. Exactly. Always got to always got to bring the firemen in. We're the social control mechanism. They're the heroes, right? I mean, exactly. You know, and and they get, hey, I don't want to offend anybody. No, I don't want to go either. Yeah, that's a, yeah, that's. But they the twenty four on forty eight off to work out until the fire comes and and, but anyway, so that's enough. Of that there's always been a little competition between cops and firemen and yeah, always. And, but we love them. We rely on them. We hope that they're there when you know. But they always used to tell me all the time, "Man, you guys are crazy." I wouldn't do your job where people yeah. are trying to kill you and shoot at you and bullets. And I said, yeah, well, you're crazy. I wouldn't run into a burning building if you paid me twice what I'm making. Right. Yeah, so. but you know what? They, I'm not going to even open up the can of worms. Well, it's, nope. it's right. listen, let, let's just They only this. do it to a certain extent, and then after it's too hot, then they don't go in. They just well, I don't blame them, but, but either well, way. Let's just say We this. go into the bullets. It doesn't matter. We run to the gunfire. They run to the fires. Right. And That's it's, the bottom it, line. It's their calling. So, yeah. And now, know. my daughter's going to kick my butt because my daughter's... More power to them. Whatever. <laughs> That's but I love you, Ash. You're a good girl. I love the fire department. I mean, I was one. I was a volunteer for between oh, Broward fire, and Plantation 18 years. Being I a fireman is very cool, actually. But I absolutely yeah. loved it. Right. Let's go on with the show now. Let's days. Get me in <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, before we get any in, in deeper. But in, uh, anyway, so getting back to the show, in reading um, your show prep, uh, I couldn't help but notice that Long before you made the move to DEA, uh, you were very curious. Uh, maybe that's not the word. Maybe you were very focused on drugs, um, the addiction, uh, the societal way of life, and the impacts that accompanied it. So this is this is why. Forgive me for cutting you off, but I'm I'm going there. You're going right to the question. Right My to question, the question is before he answers it: Is what drew your attention to the issue or piqued your interest so much? that you decided that you needed to, to be on the front line. So as a young cop, I can remember a day when most crime was opportunistic. You know, somebody stole something or something got robbed, and 90% of the crime was committed by 5% of the population. Right. Right? It was, it was an easy job because you only had to police a certain segment of you know, and you'd see the same offenders over and over again. You got to know them. They got to know you. But in the early 80s, somebody invented crack cocaine. And oh, man. it yeah. began to get distributed in the neighborhoods where I policed. And I watched lives change drastically. Um, the sons and daughters of policemen, the sons and daughters of, of ministers, um, the first DEA agent I ever met, <clears throat> excuse me, walked up to my police car uh, one day and said, identified himself and said, I need your help. He says, I can't find my daughter. And she's got a problem, right? Well, without going into a lot of details, she wasn't hard to find. I knew, you know, um, where to go look for her. And, and we dragged her out of the crack house and got her into treatment. Right. Uh, she went to jail. She wouldn't steal 
to support her habit. Right, but she was a beautiful little blonde girl, and we pulled her out of the crack houses over and over and over again. And I got very attached to this family, very attached to this little girl, you know. And um, ultimately, she contracted HIV, and this was back in the day when HIV was a death sentence. Yeah. And she had passed by the time she was 24. <clears throat> Excuse me. And, um, you know, Gary and I are contemporaries. You know, I mean, story after story after story of that kind of impact on people's lives who would have had another choice. Right. Had it not been for the drug addiction. And um, I just felt like, you know, if I was going to be a cop, if I was going to live out my my purpose in life, that I needed to go where I could do the most good. And um, DEA was it. Um, I actually went out and interviewed, you know, Customs undercover boat handler, and I interviewed a, you know, they had this long-haired guy at Boca Inlet, you know, and I went out and talked to him. I talked to people from each of the federal agencies, and the, the person that made the greatest impact on me was an old uh, DEA guy, Steve Greeley, and we got to be good friends. Right. Uh, he had indicted Noriega <clears throat> about that time, well. and um, so I was kind of his confidant in, in those times. And anyway. <clears throat> um, DEA just had a strong pull for me because of the nature of the mission. Yeah. And I regarded drugs as the single most significant social issue of my generation. Oh, that's great. And still do, frankly. Definitely. It takes a, takes a special person to, to do that and focus, like, know that that's their calling and then focus towards that whereas like when we get in like when i got hired i knew hey you know i got i became a law enforcement officer oh now i want to go here now i want to go there now i want to go there when you knew like from the get-go what your i did remember different was. things yeah i mean i was i was with deerfield for <clears throat> 14 years but uh so i was canine handler and and i worked a year of traffic and i was in um Funny story, we won't go into the details, but I was in the Bureau for a while, um, and uh, I just knew that I wanted to do something more than what I was able to do right. within that jurisdiction, so federal service was the right thing for me. Did you know just uh, Joe Costelli? Oh, yeah. Joe and I are, yeah. <laughs> yeah. He was one of my FTOs. I got some Costelli stories, but I, I won't tell him. them on the air. He's a great guy. <laughs> He's a great guy. Um well, that's good. Anyway, like I said, it's um, your your whole background, bio, and everything is history. Um, your experience not only includes being uh, an instructor and a supervisor for the DEA, um, but you also became a country attaché, right, for U.S. Embassy in Haiti. Tell us about your assignment in Haiti, um, the responsibility you were given uh, while you were there. Tell us, you know, a little bit about that. Well, I got to back up to a story that Gary and I were sharing on the. Um in the green room before the show. <clears throat> when I first got hired with DEA, my first job was as a response investigator to customs seizures. Customs would seize drugs at the airport or at the seaport, and at, at, there was a, Vice President Bush had a task force in Florida of combined DEA customs guys, and we'd go out and investigate these seizures to see if we couldn't further the investigations right. beyond that. Anyway, long story short, it occurred to me we arrested three Haitian girls one night, and they were body packing cocaine. And um, 
the short version of the story is I put that together with, uh, I went back and did some homework, identified 15 other cases uh, where there were about 20 other girls, and I combined all those investigations into one in, and ultimately prosecuted what they call a continuing criminal enterprise, a CCE. I identified the six guys who were responsible for all these couriers. And they were all Haitians. And they were all Haitians. So right. the, that brings the story home. That was, In 1991, that was my initiation to Haitians. And... I don't know. I just fell in love with the community. I fell in love with the people. I got to know them a lot. Uh, I went back and forth to Haiti for 20 years uh, during the course of my enforcement career. And when I left training, I didn't want to. I didn't want to finish my career as a trainer. I wanted to go back to the street for a while. Right. And the job opened up in in Haiti, uh, so I applied for it and I got it. And pr- primarily, I guess, probably because I had such a history down there, awesome. and I, I was known for that within my organization. But, but when we got down there, um, it was myself and four other uh, criminal investigators and a support staff of two or three people. When we got down there, there was 40 narcotics agents assigned to the Haitian National Police who never left the office. Really? Never left the office. So they had the position, but they never... Well, they were run by a guy that w- whose, let's say, his credibility was in question. Okay, <laughs> so working with the, the Haitian government, uh, we got him removed. We put a new guy in there that we that we knew was, you know, credible right. and trustworthy, and we built it up to 140 agents. We seized all kinds of dopes. We traveled all over the country. That's awesome. Uh, chasing. There was a problem with it at the time with light aircraft coming in from Colombia and Venezuela, landing in Haiti, offloading dope. And then they would move it to these coastal freighters. Um, and the coastal freighters would then come into Miami and Port, Port Everglades and whatever. So that's what we did. We chased that. That's awesome. You know, h- hundreds of kilos um, and uh, lots and lots Literally of Literally a lot of, lot of legwork there, a lot of back and forth. This and that, a lot of we spent a lot of time on goat trails way up in the mountains yeah. where most people wouldn't go. Well, and so obviously your experience is what enabled you uh, and <clears throat> why people recognized you. Uh, and the job that you do, and you, uh, you became an instructor. You were an instructor, uh, uh, the DEA Training Academy in Quantico. Right. right. So tell us a, a little bit about, uh, I believe you said you had developed some courses also. Uh, you did course development or something there all, as well? All, all, all DEA instructors <clears throat> are expected to, they send us to a training uh, training as course developers and, and course presenters. So. Uh, we customize training programs uh, not only for DEA special agents, you know, b- basic agents going through the academy, but we also teach at the FBI on counter-narcotics issues. And uh, my particular unit, I did that for a year, my, but the unit I spent most of my time in was the International Training Unit. And what that does, what we did, was export American policing practices, um, best practices, for narcotics enforcement to law enforcement executives around the world. I, in Bangkok, I went there four times a year. We'd bring in executives from police agencies from 11 different countries in Asia. In Africa, Botswana, Africa, uh, all of the South African, Southern African nations were represented uh, with police executives there. We had two schools, International Law Enforcement Academies, in South America and another one in Eastern Europe, in Budapest, Hungary. 
And so we just traveled around uh, as a team uh, doing counter-narcotics presentations for these executives so that they could then bring those practices home to their personnel. Awesome, which is, which is uh, you pretty much cover my follow-up question would have been your travel opportunities uh, as an instructor and stuff like that where you got to conduct multi-jurisdictional investigations. Uh, you, 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 you taught other agencies and stuff like that. Is that how it worked? And you well, put the, together these groups of, these large groups of people and well, the, the, so the training overseas is mostly organized by the State Department, U.S. State Department. And so you uh, have a curriculum to follow or like something like that? We, or would, no? we would customize curriculums for the audience, okay. depending on who the audience was, what their level of experience was. Okay. We would customize a, a four, either a 40-hour or an 80-hour presentation for that particular group, address the issues relating. For example, you, in some countries you can't do undercover operations. It's illegal. So we wouldn't do undercover. We wouldn't teach an undercover course there. And so we would study the nuances of where we were going, what they were allowed to do, what they weren't allowed to do, and we would customize a package for them. I did uh, ad hoc schools in uh, Jordan for the Cypriot cops and the Jordanians. I did an ad hoc school for the Iraqi police uh, for six weeks um, in 2004. I mean, the travel opportunities were tremendous. Yeah. Uh, I, I, like I said, it was I a very big workload. It was a very big, uh, I a lot of responsibility on your shoulders there to help. I was lucky to have it. I yeah. was very fortunate to be there. I count my blessings. Yeah. You know, I mean, it was a great Did opportunity. You, uh, were you in, what were you doing? Um, didn't you do something? Or no, you were canine. Well, can right? Were so you were you uh, drug canine? Yeah. yeah. No, no, I wasn't canine. <laughs> I was going to go into the canine unit. I had all my... I had the dog, I had the car, I had everything. And then my wife came to me and said, guess what, I'm pregnant. Oh. I don't want you to go on midnights, so Oops. stay on the motorcycle squad. Yeah. You go. That took care of that. But I did a lot of the stuff uh, Gary's talking about. Yeah. Not the schooling, but uh, we all share a lot of the same stories and experiences. When I was in the Organized Crime Division and at Federal Task Forces, I did a lot of that stuff. So. And you did that for how long? How long were cool, you in with that? Probably half my career almost. Yeah. 15 years or better. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, it was the number one problem, right? For our generation of police officer, you know, wherever you worked, you were a drug agent, you know? Yeah. And uh, we were sharing stories in the green room before that, you know, we sitting out in the Everglades waiting on airplanes or boats, you know, sitting, yeah. you know. Um, good times, man. <laughs> yeah, they were. Yeah. Well, maybe time. that's a lot of funny stories. That's probably where we need to go back to. Uh, wherever you work, you become, you know, you get involved in the, the drug stuff to... Well, it's the same. It's the same thing for young cops now, you know. Yeah, but I mean, it's today's police work. I mean, it is so busy out there, and we're so short-handed, and so many new know. things to concentrate yeah, on. Yeah, they really are. The terrorism and all that stuff that we didn't have to right. put so, so much, much stuff into uh, back in the day, you know. Um, well, but you know, anyway. I was doing Russian organized crime, and all of a sudden, next thing you know, that's not important anymore, and I'm off to. Bin Laden and the boys and yeah exactly you know. yeah all right well let's move on to tonight's topic um the united states is in the midst of an opioid epidemic the american society of addiction medicine indicates that close to three million people battled opioid addiction to either heroin or prescription painkillers in 2015 more than 60 percent of the record high overdose deaths overdose deaths in 2015 involved an opioid <laughs> 
drug. You all right? 91 people in the U.S. die from opioid overdose daily. Uh, the Centers for Disease and Control and Prevention reports. Also in 2015, roughly 300 million prescriptions were dispensed for narcotic pain medications around the world, and Americans consumed 80% of them. That being said, I mean, you know, obviously you know numbers, you've been there, you've done that, you know where we were, where we are, because you've uh, studied it intensely, and you made it your mission, like you said. What about uh, past and current social uh, attitudes today um, towards drug use? What do you think about? I think it's just repeating, you know, itself. I mean, we consumed, as a nation, we consumed 80% of the cocaine in the world, too, you know. Um, Colombian uh, politicians and even cops will tell you that Colombia doesn't have a drug problem. America's got a drug problem. Yeah. Right. We have the most money, for one thing. We have the most money. And, and therein lies the problem to some degree. Um, when you're in a fluent co uh, country with a lot of disposable income, and we live in the most prosperous time in human history and the most prosperous nation in the world per capita, and it's not enough. Uh, you know, for some reason we need something more, you know. And... Like I say, going back to the earliest parts of my career, young people get involved in a drug culture, right? You're in high school. Um, you know, everybody has a couple of beers. Everybody gets into a little trouble. Uh, the reason, this is not a popular opinion, but the reason I have always been opposed to marijuana legalization is because it's a gateway drug. Now, I've come to think differently about it. I believe... Um, we'll go back to the gateway drug point for just a second. I've never met a heroin addict, I've never met a coke addict, I've never met a meth addict who didn't get introduced to the drug culture through marijuana. They started off, you know, smoking weed, and through those social associations, they came into contact with more powerful drugs. And I believe that, that in my experience, based on what I saw in the crack epidemic, um, that's what happened. and But just to go back on that, just to touch on that just for a second. So it's understandable, yeah, um, all these other type of drugs are you can trace back to their beginning use of marijuana, but not all marijuana users turn out to be heroin, crack cocaine, you know. Uh, no, absolutely, but not all, not all people who drink become alcoholics. But, right. But... Alcoholism is a serious problem in this country. It's one of the leading causes of death. Most doctors will tell you that. Right. Um, you know, in our generation of cop, we, we've had to go from very light enforcement of DUI laws because so many people were dying. I lost a brother in a DUI car accident. Um, we had to get more strenuous about the enforcement of DUI laws. So you're you're right. Not everybody who's... And, not everybody who smokes pot becomes a drug addict. And the truth of the matter is, a lot of people who have addiction problems to alcohol can turn to marijuana as an alternative source of satisfying whatever that need is right. without killing themselves on alcohol. Because alcohol will kill you, you know? Right. And that, you know, we just, I don't, you watched last week's episode, you watched the rerun where I was talking about, 
I mean, when you think about this stuff and then to think that in, in New York they're talking about uh, not, you know, I charging really, kids with drinking and with marijuana in the schools. And you you got to think, well, you know, what are these people thinking? Well, and interestingly enough, I loved your comment by your tech. He says, you know, you can smoke pot and drink at school, but if you smoke a cigarette out in, in public, they're going to hang you, right? <laughs> yeah. uh, my tech. You hear that, Danny? <laughs> Sorry. You, Danny. You, you are my tech. <laughs> you know, it just went off the air. Oh, yeah. <laughs> now, uh, before we go, before we, we touch on it, I've got a caller on the phone, uh, a caller on the line. We'll go ahead and answer it. I think it, it might be Tina. You told Tina to call hey, in. It might good. be Iran. Get ready, Gary, because you're in trouble. I'm just kidding. Hello, Tina. You have ESP. Yeah. <laughs> I knew you were going to call. I know you. Hello, Gary. You love me. I love you. I'm answering your prayers. How are you? Good. <laughs> I'm well. And yourself? Great, great. So is this a social call to Gary, or is it like... Of course. No, she can't no, help no. herself. No, I'm just kidding. She's I'm only just human. <laughs> yes, actually. But uh, no, I, it's also directed for your um, guest, Gary, um, with the whole drug situation like you know anthony being my big brother and also being a law enforcement officer he knows i'm not an angel um you know i've dabbled in pot smoking in my younger days but with a 17 and a 15 year old child you know i worry maybe they will try to experiment with pot smoking or something in these days um you're speaking about when crack cocaine was introduced in the 80s and it became an epidemic well now you know i don't know about down there in florida but the big thing here is everything being laced with the fentanyl huge which we're, what, which we're definitely going to talk touch on absolutely. but yes go ahead team yeah that's what that's my thing i mean there are so many deaths and overdoses you know like daily and these are some kids that have never even tried drugs before so that's what we're talking to our kids about that you know while it may be you know just the thing that teenagers do experiment whatever if you even think to try something once it may be your last time well see and, you know, and, you and try i'm it once I'm, and you're gonna die i'm glad you said that tina because that's gonna bring up a point that i want to talk about with the fentanyl because we see it all the time down here i mean it's crazy down here I mean, now we're carrying Narcan to administer. I mean, we're not paramedics and EMTs, but we're carrying Narcan to administer to these because it saves lives. It does. Absolutely. Okay. I agree. Here's the issue, though. Well, and when you, sorry, Tina, give me just one second. Go ahead. Uh, and I'll give you an example. Just not last week. We go to a call. He's dead. You know, not breathing. Blah blah blah. We get there. Narcan install. You know, sure enough. You know, he's turning purple, and sure enough, he's gone he's done and uh you know shot of the uh the narcan and boom he's back i mean literally getting ready to call the guy and literally comes comes back to life and then oh i'm not overdosed anymore uh i don't want to go to the hospital you know i'm i'm good but they when they do it over and over and over and over again and we keep responding out there and bringing them back, they're getting comfortable in that level. And I, don't, I just don't right. think that's a safe right. place for us. Oh, it's not. I don't think right. it's well, a safe right. place for well, us. One of the problems is that a lot of addicts go back and forth to detox and rehabs and back and forth. 
and then when they get di- they've been clean for a while then they get dirty again and they go back out and they use and you can't go use the same same amount same amount or dose that you used before right but that's what they do and that's what kills them because it's got the fentanyl in it but it but it's the dosage. Yeah, but the, I mean, that they shoot getting, up and it's all over. There. They're getting so comfortable though with with doing it and knowing that they're well, going to be. Not only that, Narcan's costing a lot of money, and some of the cities recently have said, "We're not doing this anymore. We're not buying it. We're not carrying it. And we're not shooting them up anymore." Yeah, Sorry. it's tough. It's definitely tough, especially having a, a in with kids in seventeen and, and fifteen nowadays. I mean. This is a pretty. Right. It's scary. It's a pretty it's tough scary. time right now. Yeah. yeah. So let me and, let me jump in on Tina's question. And that by. Oh, okay. Go ahead. I'm sorry, Gary. Well, no, no, that's okay. I mean, I want this discussion, but the fact of the matter is, all you can do is talk to your kids. Right. Like I say, the first right. DEA guy I ever met lost a child to uh, drug addiction or the consequences resulting from the drug addiction. All you can do is talk to your kids and try to give them the best information you can, supervise them, discipline them to the extent that that helps. Once they get to be 15 or 17, you know, the discipline only goes so far because they're going to do what they want to do. But <clears throat> you just need to educate them about the consequences of their actions. I used to tell my kids, one night, one bad decision can change your life forever, yeah. ever. Yep. You know, one night, one bad decision. And we'll talk more about that in a bit. But, yep. Um, Right. And thankfully, uh, you know, I'm a catechist at our church, and we have a program where we have the local police department come in, um, and they do go over a film with, unfortunately, drug addiction. And at, you know, you know, catechism age, I mean, it starts in first grade, but it goes over the drug abuse, and, you know, parents get a Narcan kit and the whole nine yards, but they show the children you know, somebody on the side of the road, you know, down from yeah, I know, think that was, an overdose. That was a big thing many years ago. I mean, not when I was young, young, but when they were, remember remember this, this scared, scared straight uh, error? The, the, the D.A.R.E. program. And they would take you, you know, we, let, let's bring them. I'm going to bring you to the morgue. You want to see what it's like? You know, I mm-hmm. mean, the, the scared straight, I mean, literally scaring them because you, had to do that like i've been fortunate enough to that i you know i told my kids and i explained to them and you know pretty straight up with everything in their lives and you know i've been very fortunate and blessed that you know for the most part everything has turned out good so far thank god um but the whole thing my son's been fortunate enough to have you in the black box in the garage (laughs) that's a whole other story but that's it. That is, yeah. But Tina, thanks for calling in. It is a. Uh, it's, it's very scary. And um, and besides, you know, they don't want to start that because I'll have to come and talk to them. And I don't think Adam wants to Absolutely. talk to me. Absolutely. Bye, Tina. So, thank well, you very much. Talk to them next week. Thank you, guys. Have All a right. great night. Good thank night. You. Thank you. Yeah. So, um, and that brings me to, uh, yeah. As as uh, you know, we can only do so much. As the parents, I mean, we can tell them right once they get older and they make their own decisions, and that's and I'm glad it's talking about the fentanyl because it brings up the story that and I wasn't going to list this as one of the three stories we talked about, but just in doing my show prep, the the girl, did you hear about the girl from American Idol? What's her name? Her name is Antonella Barba. You remember this girl from Idol? Yeah, I think fentanyl. So now she's going to go. She's going to go to prison because, you know, they 
found uh, two pounds of fentanyl in her oh, in her rental car. Oh, two pounds. Oh, and I'm and I'm and I'm saying, what do you think? I mean, you just you had this huge, you know, thing with American Idol and everything, and you know, you could you were going places, and then what makes you? Hey, what do all the celebrities think? And they get on drugs too. So, <sighs> well, so, multi-million dollar actor and actress, and they shoot up heroin. So. so, well, I mean, and and that's really an important point to bring up is it doesn't matter. What your social level is, it doesn't matter if you were born poor, yep. if you were born rich. Right. The fact of the matter is, once you try it, and that was the problem with crack cocaine, you know, uh, kids who basically had never really done anything take a hit off a pipe, right? And without going into the details of the pharmacology of it, um, the way the drug impacts your body, it produces a high that is extraordinarily satisfying. The problem is you'll never get that high again, but you'll chase it for the rest of your life. Right. Yeah. Right. And heroin does the same thing. It's a different. It's a different nature of the drug. It's a depressant rather than um, like meth, but it's the same concept. Right. right. Once you get that feeling, nothing else matters but that feeling. You'll you know, and it's a path, right? You know, first it's well. I don't mind giving up my job. I got to go get high. Then it's I don't mind giving up my marriage. I got to go get high. I don't mind giving up my kids. I got to go get high, right? I don't mind selling my body. I got to go get high. Um, they walk down this garden path, and it's just more and more deterioration. Worse and worse judgment. Uh, my youngest son's best friend from school uh, just succumbed to a heroin overdose. Mm. He had started taking pills. And because he couldn't get the pills, he switched to heroin. Mm. And he got a hot shot. Probably so it was better. easier for him to get the pills, heroin than Pills get too expensive, pills. and heroin's really cheap. Exactly. So let me ask you this then. Is it just me or, or the last few uh, drugs, did they come and go rapidly, like the, the Flocka, the, you know, when, the, when people were doing it? I mean, it was, it was, it was marijuana. It was heroin. It was acid. I'm talking about way, way back. back in the day, and it, it seemed like it was like a. To me, it appears it was slow and spread out. But then the last few, within the last ten, fifteen years, or whatever, uh, the different drugs, was it a rapid uh, introduction and switchover, or, or was it, am I just? Well, I didn't want to get too far down in the weeds on it, but the heroin addiction situation goes back to the fifties and sixties, right? Um, and if you look at speed and amphetamines and so forth that even goes back much farther but you know the current issue is i believe it started the real bad stuff started with the crack cocaine epidemic right. because popping acid was a choice it wasn't addictive uh smoking pot really is not addictive it's right. habit forming but not addictive but crack cocaine heroin any of the opioids Methamphetamine. Crack is still out there, but I don't think it's near as popular as it used to be. It's not, and for, for obvious reasons, yeah. because you can make meth. I have a case right now in my private investigation business where um, a guy was making meth. One, they got a one-pot cook now that they can do uh, if they get the right ingredients. He was cooking meth with his four kids sleeping in the same house. Mm, mm, you mm, know? Mm, I wouldn't doubt it. And, um, but the, the high for meth lasts much longer than crack cocaine. And you don't have to import it. 
you can make it right there in your kitchen sink and so that's why meth has superseded crack as a drug of choice wow and meth is extremely addicting as yeah. well extremely yeah. addicting yeah. uh it's uh, i mean have you you've seen before and after pictures of meth addicts oh my god mm. have you ever well, i mean it's just phenomenal yeah. but I mean, you know another um another issue too that i think we need to touch on too is the prescription drug problem right which is which is i was gonna i was gonna talk a little bit about that too the oxycodones you know you know the what do they had roxycodone percocet um they say oxycodone is uh it's uh, more than 35 billion dollars in sales uh for purdue pharma since it burst onto the market since 1995 so here's my spin on that Forgive me for interrupting, but go ahead. The fact I, of the matter. I already. Is, I told you how the show is formatted, so you can do whatever you got to do. Good. Thank you for having me. I'm really enjoying this. I'm good. Um, the the fact of the matter is, the cocaine epidemic spawned the Medellin cartel and the Cali cartel, and basically the executive boards of Let's Go Poison America for fun and profit, right? And the stories, both Gary and I can tell you are legion about the impact of all that. So I don't recognize any difference between the board of directors of the Medellin cartel or the Cali cartel than I do Big Pharma because it's poisoning people for profit, you know? And until we hold these people, the corporations need to be held civilly liable so that the shareholders feel the pain, you know? And the, the people who make the distribution decisions, the doctors that make the prescriptions need to go to prison. And the marketing. Yeah, the, oh, the, the, a lot of the reason they're being sued now is for aggressive marketing. Absolutely. When they should have known better. Just like to ba- big tobacco. I mean, they're selling, you know, can, Joe Camel was selling cigarettes to kids. Well, the big pharma is marketing so aggressively, it's like the guy you ran into at the restaurant, right? I had a little stroke, <clears> and <throat> I've been taking, you know, 20 pills a, a month now ever since. Well, there's no basis, no medical basis for that. No. You know? And and to I, I will tell you, not that I was naive to it. I just don't think I ever um, thought too heavily about it, but not until I did the research on the show. It's, it's amazing because I. the good thing about doing the last three shows, it, it, it has enabled me to see things when I'm doing the research and finding things. And, you know, Big Pharma to me, when I heard that word prior to, to uh, researching the show, was Big Pharma. So it's, you know what? It takes a whole nother meaning. A whole, it takes on a whole nother meaning now that I've read about it and I followed up on it and I've and I've checked. It, you know, did my show research and learned. I learned a lot of stuff about it. It's crazy. It's absolutely well, unbelievable. Not long ago, sixty minutes or forty-eight hours, one of those type of shows <clears throat> did a special on uh, on the pills and prescriptions, and I think they tuned in on a small town in Kentucky. About 800 population. Don't, I'm not sure about the numbers, but I'm guesstimating. Right. Uh, 800 population. <clears throat> they had a pill mill there, and they were they were given out a, a million doses of for 800,000 population, a million or more crazy. doses of crazy. pills, and so it's just crazy, crazy. For the audience, tell, define a pill mill. I mean, it, it, it's just what the name implies, right? Well, not it's I, a doctor's I, I, office. I, I know recently there's uh, someone that. Uh, went to a pill mill doctor 
they knew they were an addict, and they gave them a prescription for 90 Clonopins. 90, and they were gone and nothing flat, whoever did. Yeah, no questions asked. I mean, exactly. that's just the way it is. And yeah, and it's, it's crazy because the, uh, you know, we get calls for it all the time, daily. Oh, my pill. Somebody stole my pills. Somebody stole my pills. Sure. I mean, a lot of the times we they go there to do reports. They steal them. Right. They used them ahead right. of time. Right. But see, don't and tell they want that. us to don't give tell my, that to the addict. Yeah, no, I did the same thing. I took. Yeah. I told him I'm not taking your report. You're yeah, lying. don't. Well, you know, we we can't. It all depends on the circumstances, but for the most part, you know, we know what's going on. You can tell. It's the yeah. It's, it's just a sad state of affairs, and, and you know, like you say, and and stealing, and that's lying, lying to the cops. Yeah. You know, I mean, just to get more pills. You know, filing a false police report just to get more pills. Yeah. You're literally sticking your hand in the lion's mouth yeah. just to satisfy your addiction. And that's why I said shows they all do anything. All yeah. the show research has given me a whole nother perspective on Big Pharma because, like I said, Big Pharma to me was just a word before until I did the research on it. And before you, before we talk about that, so we were talking the DEA. I wanted to talk about hydrocodone too because the DEA. The agency you worked for uh, uh, said that hydrocodone is uh, one of the drugs most frequently involved in prescription opioid overdose deaths. Absolutely. And it's considered highly addictive. They said that um, hydrocodone is uh, the top prescribed and most regularly diverted and abused opioid drug. Um, they con Americans consume 99% of the world's supply of hydrocodone. Which is crazy. Yeah, because we're not in that much pain, you know. Ninety-nine percent of the world's hydrocodone. We're just not in that much pain. No, I don't, I'm not hurting that bad. Yeah, I'm not hurting that bad either. I mean, I'm old, but it's still. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's it's amazing. Like I said, I'm I, I'm glad you came to this show, and we did this show on a number of levels. Well, let me say, speaking. Well, he's not done yet. I'm not done. Yet. Oh no, no, I'm just saying. <laughs> we just, just got to get him. We got to get him going. Here. It's let, exactly <laughs> so. I never like to oversimplify any problem. So let's talk about Big Pharma for just a minute while sure. we're there. Sure. Okay. They are for-profit companies, and their shareholders are entitled to make a profit. Right? We all depend. We've got one of the best um, life expectancies of any nation in the world because, frankly, we've got uh, the, some of the best medical care in the, in the world. Right. Big Pharma is entitled to make their profit. They're entitled. They, they need money to, to do research, re researching new drugs. Uh, that are saving lives costs money but somebody's got to draw the line about where they make that profit and it cannot be at the expense of the american public until enough senators or congress people lose their children to an overdose you're not going to see it change but a lot of attorneys general around the country right now are suing big pharma for the costs of the opioid epidemic within their jurisdictions. Mm. And I think that that's a great start. Mm. And so now, going moving back to the, the fentanyl, um, that thing, that has exploded, just, it's, it's gone crazy as far as uh, the rate that people are doing it at. And um, according to the DEA, um, there were 6.5 million prescriptions uh, given out in 2015 for fent of fentanyl, okay? And not only uh, can you get them in as a prescription from your doctors, but they're available in several different forms. Lozenges, you can get it, you can do it nasally, subliminal sprays. Uh, people, Lollipops. They freeze it up 
in in patches so they could suck or chew on these these patches um or they scrape uh the gel off off of these uh patches to inject it which is i mean when you think about the different ways that people are going the the different levels that they're going to to get this stuff the desperation. And, and take it yeah it's, the desperation is just mind-boggling and first, like you said first of all fentanyl has to be dosed with other drugs and other cut with other stuff you just can't you, know, you just can't take fentanyl. Not as an abuse. All you have to do is do just a little bit too much, and right. it's all it's right. all over. Right. Well, so let me. Can I touch on that for one more? Yeah, s- go ahead. Second? Go ahead. So go ahead. Go ahead. The problem with fentanyl, and they used to warn us about this all the time when we were doing drug raids. Um, if a police officer is in the middle of a drug raid or a search warrant, and he comes across it and doesn't yep. he or she doesn't recognize the the risk, that's why I'm very much in favor of police officers carrying Narcan. Not necessarily for the addict, although I for guess them. we have a, right. for, for the police officer. Yeah. Because if a cop goes down, and I've heard of a case Absorbing of, through their hands and fingers. Yeah, and, I heard that it, it, it's, it's absorbed through the skin, and it's very and, and it's very easily absorbed. Very easily absorbed. And, and Small all, amount? All you got to do is, you know, God forbid, the package is open a little bit, rub your eye. Yeah. You know? Um, so as a, as a safety measure for law enforcement, I believe cops need to be carrying Narcan sure. to sure. protect ourselves. Yep. I agree. Um, as a reminder, uh, Observations is broadcast live every Thursday night at 7 p.m. Eastern on the Observation Facebook page, the Observations YouTube channel, and on the Observations Twitter page at Observations underscore. If you have a comment, question, or a story you'd like to share, join the conversation. We want you to join the conversation. Tina, Tina called in already. You know, I got I got more than that in sisters, and I know I got cousins listening. And you, did you tell anybody, Gary? No, I'm just kidding. Uh, sometimes pe- uh, people are very, you know, were pretty shy about calling in. And I don't understand why, but it's a, it's okay. 888-511-COPS, 888-511-2677. Or you can instant message. Right? We'll answer, you know, you don't even have to give, We if tell us on there, We don't not to give your name. If you're really that worried about it. And if you're that worried, you can text me like the guy did last week. <laughs> yeah. And we threw his name out there anyway. Yeah. No, it doesn't matter. Um, so just instant message our question, your questions or comments to us on our Facebook page. Um, Gary, as far as I see it, uh, your extensive work and experience makes you an expert uh, in the subject. What is your understanding with drug use, sales, and the lower uh, socioeconomic uh, neighborhoods? All right. I wouldn't call myself an expert on anything. but I, I would. I, I mean, I think it's a very impressive resume. I'm but, but I I'm tooting your own horn for you, but I, I really, I, I admire. But your, I have your... an opinion on everything, and I'm perfectly happy to give it to you. Okay. So let's talk about that. I mean, you know, when Gary and I were young cops, I mean, that's what we saw, right? We saw open-air drug markets. We saw in neighborhoods where there were not a lot of economic opportunities, we saw the beginnings of these open-air drug markets. And this country is suffering the consequences of that to this day. It's kind of a vicious cycle, you know, so you've got these poor kids, nothing else to do, um, no economic opportunity, but, you know, some Colombian settles into the neighborhood and says, boys, I can fix you up, right? And the next thing you know, he's distributing cocaine through these guys. Crack cocaine. Crack cocaine. Because there were two kinds of drugs back in the day. The poor kids' drugs, crack cocaine, and marijuana then. And then 
uh, the rich kids' drugs that were the designer drugs, and that's what all the rich kids were taking. Or, or the cocaine powder, you know. Yeah, a cocaine and powder form, yeah. co- Back in the day, he, uh, uh, some secretary was making $125 a week is dropping 60 bucks on a gram of powder, right? But crack comes along, and now she likes the feeling, so she can drive over into the lower socioeconomic neighborhoods and pick up a, a, a rock for 10 bucks, mm. you know, and that's where that started. Well, based based on that economy, now you've got a now you've got guys standing out on the corner selling dope with money in their pockets. Well, if you got money in your pockets in a lower socioeconomic neighborhood, you've got to worry about protecting it, right? So you're carrying a gun, and you know I I could tell war stories all night long about policing Front Street in Deerfield. Um, and the close calls we had, uh, protecting the people in the street from the guys up the road who would come into town and, and pull out the MAC-10s and, you know, the high-capacity automatic pistols to engage in robbery, and a lot of deaths happened that way. Um, so you get that economic shot in the arm, pardon the pun, into these lower socioeconomic neighborhoods that come with violence, that come with more drug distribution, and the drug distribution begets more violence, and it's a cycle. Well, nobody, no business is going to come and invest in that community right. when when that's the the main draw. Right. So now what you have is perpetuation, the cycle of there's nothing here to do except sell dope, right? And then you get the gangs. Because you you got to have, you know, people out there to boys to have your back, right? Um, so they break off into gangs, and the next thing you know, there's turf wars and, and uh, violence for the sake of who gets the corner. And it's this has gone on since the 80s, mm-hmm. and the anti-police sentiment that you see going in, in the nation right now is, I believe, a, a consequence of us trying to police those communities and make them safe for the decent people that live there, right? Because, you know, you've got single mothers and people trying to earn a living, living in these neighborhoods that have to run this gauntlet of, you know, drug trafficking just to make a living, just to get out and buy milk for the kids. Right. And um, so we go in, we try to enforce the law, now we become the bad guy. And, unfor- and you know, there are a lot of people in those neighborhoods, too, that want us in there want us because there. they go home at night, get their groceries, go in the house and lock the doors, and they stay in because they're afraid of getting shot. The kids can't play out in the yard because yep. they're afraid of getting shot. Yep. You ask anybody in Liberty City, you go to any church in Liberty City and talk to the parishioners there, the, the congregation there, and they'll say they don't know what to do because they lock themselves in at night. They're prisoners in their own homes because the gangsters are controlling the streets. And we didn't want, oh well. Go ahead. When the cops show up and start shooting people, then all of a sudden, you're, oh, you're shooting too many people here. What are you doing? Well, that's that, we're not the bad guys. We're not the bad guys. And how do you go in and enforce the law uh, among people who are, are intrinsically violent? I mean, it's it's now part of the culture and lifestyle uh, to be violent because they have to protect themselves or they're fighting for turf or whatever. You you can't go in there and say, hey, you know. I'm a nice guy, you're a nice guy, we want you to, you know, we want to keep the streets safe, why don't you put your guns away? Can, can I go to, 
Can I digress a little you bit? You can do, listen. All right. Whatever you want, bud. As they say in showbiz, the floor is yours. All, All right. right. So, so I, in preparation for this, I was watching a thing on television on um, <clears throat> PBS about this program in Baltimore, which is one of the most violent cities in the, in the yeah. country. Baltimore? Baltimore. Oh, yeah. Um, about how they're trying to address the violence. Bear with me as I go through this. Sure. I know this is intended for a cop audience, but I'm gonna I'm gonna go here. Okay. Um, they have started programs now where they're recruiting. I'm gonna I'm gonna call it the way we would call it reformed thugs as violence interrupters. Right. They're treating the gun violence in this country like you would treat a medical epidemic. Right. The way, the procedure for interrupting an epidemic is to do social isolation so that you cut off the the propagation of the epi, of the the disease so, so but before you go on explain that a little bit i'm i'm probably a little slow cuz i don't quite get just so what you're saying is they're using techniques that you would use to stop an, uh, a medical epidemic right as a as an exemplar of how to deal with the gun violence by reformed thugs. So, so well, I mean, hear me out. Well, now. this is Hang what on. I'm saying. So that that's what that's where my question was. Do you mean that they're taking uh, actual criminals or people who have been? I don't know what the recruitment process is. Just let me. I know this is going to sound far fetched. Uh, okay, I'm just same, trying to understand. But, what, uh, but so here's my logic. Okay, so I had a little trouble watching the show. And one of the guys that they put up there, who was a violence interrupter, he—they literally showed a segment where one person in the community had ordered a hit on another person in the community, a retribution killing, mm-hmm. and ultimately his crew targeted the wrong guy. Well, needless to say, that guy was upset. So now he wants to engage in a retribution killing on the guy who ordered the hit, right? They actually hired this guy to go out here and mediate between these two gangsters who were, you know, trying to kill each other. And they, they showed his negotiation technique. And, yes, he has street crits uh, because he's from the hood, right? I'm all for it. I think it's a great idea because you know what I didn't see? I didn't see a police officer having to get in the middle of this and draw fire from these two hoodlum Groups, mm. you know, and I, as far as I'm concerned, we do, we do, we have to think outside the box. We have to do something creative. Otherwise, that pattern of, of violence and drug trafficking and no opportunities is just going to um, continue a downward spiral in most of these communities. And like Trump said when he was running his campaign, what the hell do you have to lose? Right. Try something. And as far as I'm concerned, if it takes a cop out of the line of fire, I'm all for it. Right. I'm all for it. So that kind of leads me to one of the arguments in the, in the anti-law enforcement mechanism for handling a drug epidemic. Uh, well, let's make it a medical problem. Let's treat it like a, it, it's not a, let's, not, let's decriminalize it and treat it like a medical issue. Mm. And that's being tried in Europe, mm. you know. Um, the places that are trying it, Amsterdam and places like that, are the cesspools of Europe. Because where it's legal, all these drug addicts migrate in from countries where it's not legal, 
and they get their free needles and they get their free health care. It's not free health care. They're getting it for free, but the... The other residents are paying for it. The other residents are paying for it. But... Um, but are you, are you talking about all drugs? Are you talking about the legalizing? That's what they do. No, that, let, me, let me rephrase that. So marijuana is legal. Okay. The community standard is no enforcement of the harder drugs. The police turn a blind eye. I was in Amsterdam one night walking the neighborhoods, and no less than four people offered me cocaine and heroin while I was there. And I'm just a tourist there for one night, as far as they're concerned. Um, and the police are walking the same neighborhoods, keeping order, right? Um, so if a fight breaks out or whatever, they intervene. But they do nothing to stop wow. the drug trafficking. And, of course, that creates a black market, <clears throat> right. you know, and... They have the same cycle of violence and economic opportunity, the violence to protect the economic opportunity, and so forth. So, but I, I raised that as an issue because, as off the wall as it sounds, as leftist as it sounds, as a pot potential mechanism for dealing with the gun violence, we got to try something. Right. And I'm tired. Well, of we're talking about Baltimore's trying, not Amsterdam. We don't go. We're right. not for that. Well, but the fact of the matter is this is, this is a, na a, a model that's been <clears throat> created at Harvard University and some other think tanks um, that's being tried around the world. And one of the, one of the places where something simpler, similar was implemented was in um, formerly controlled ISIS territory where Christians and Muslims have, you know, centuries-old conflict. I won't digress into that because it's off topic. Yeah, but no. it's actually an internationally, it's an international model that's being tried around the world hmm. in places where violence is the norm. And um, a number of cities across the, the U.S. are trying it. And as I say, I mean, if it saves one cop's life, like the guy killed in Georgia, you know, who's there, you know, trying to make the streets safer. Right. If we can pull a, a police officer out of the line of fire, and come up with another mechanism that might solve the problem, mm. might do something for the problem, hey, I'm all for it. Mm -hmm. So that's is, a little bit it, of a departure from the traditional police thinking. but Yeah, well, it's like you said, we've got to start somewhere. I mean, I also think that uh, we need to get back to the kids again and start uh, really, really, uh, like we talked about earlier, um, letting them know if you're gonna you're gonna touch this stuff, this is what's gonna happen. Let's just we're just gonna lay it out in front of you. This is I know they're kids and stuff, but sometimes that's what they need Absolutely. to know. But we we need to find something other than the just say no thing, and that's not gonna work. Yeah, but that, uh, that's you know. Well, so. You, you wouldn't think about <coughs> letting your kid cross the street without teaching him to look for cars. Right, right. right. I mean, and, and, and as far as I'm concerned, it goes that young, and, and it's the same principle. You tell them what the dangers are, uh, and if you save one life, if you save your kid's life, then you've done the right thing. I don't care if it's dare or say no to drugs or hypnosis or voodoo i don't care what you implement as long as it works right am i wrong yeah as long oh, as there's gary destroying the microphone again. yeah again i know gary that mic doesn't owe you money stop it <laughs> yeah leave it alone. stop the violence well since we're well while we're since we're talking about the kids so one of the other statistics that i was that i had pulled up in here um uh 
in my research was that um, youth are especially vulnerable to drug abuse, according to the National Institute of Drug Abuse. Young, young Americans engaged in extraordinary levels of illicit drug use in the last third of the 20th century. Today, about 48%, 48%, almost half the kids, uh, have used a, an illicit drug by the time they leave high school. And that's the ones that just honestly report. Imagine the, right. the ones that say, no, I didn't, but did. You know? And they say, and it also said that 7% were, were eighth graders. Mm-hmm. Eighth graders. 16% were 10th graders, 24% were 12th graders and current users. It's, it's just half of our kids, half of the country's kids are dipping in. Yeah, it's in not 1965 anymore. No, well, I mean, <clears throat> the first time I ever saw pot was in seventh grade, sitting around in gym class, and the teachers just left us under a tree and went and did something, and a couple of kids break out a, a spliff, that's what we call it now, yeah, you know, spliff. a spliff, <laughs> and, and just, you know, they passed it back and forth for the, you know, they were the cool kids, yeah. you know, and, um, but that's the problem. Um, it's so prolific. Yeah. So widespread that it's going to be hard to get a, a handle on. And let me tell you, the weed that he's talking about passing forth, back and forth, wasn't even strong stuff. The weed they're smoking nowadays, woo, buddy. That stuff will light you up. Holy yeah, I'll tell you, we have uh, in our, like where we do our report writing, we, it's also, we have evidence lockers back there. And oh, I hate that. Oh, I the thought you were going to say you guys is, smoke in there. On no. Your <laughs> no, but you know, the, the smell I used, I is so that. strong. Yeah, they used to bring a, they'd bring a truckload in and put it in the evidence locker. I couldn't work in the building. Uh, I couldn't stay there. Absolutely, and, and uh, so since you had mentioned the spliff with the <laughs> with the the marijuana, but I wanted to talk about some of the street names of uh, uh, the narcotics that they were using. They call uh, narcotics or opioids. They call them smack, horse, mud, brown sugar, junk, black tat, big H. Uh, Pergoric, Dover's Powder, MPTP, which is a new heroin, I guess, MPTP. It's a synthetic um, um, Hillbilly heroin. <laughs> That's uh, Oxy and those things. So yeah, you get those in Kentucky. Yeah, unfortunately, you get that list from the same generation that Gary and I are in. Yeah, those are um, old. Th those are a little little dated. Um, <laughs> and I, I'll be honest with you, I've been off the street for a while. so <laughs> Me too, but every horse? Come on. Yeah, yeah. What, is, what is a horse? What is, <laughs> that's what they called it in the 60s. Um, but, you know, every for generation heroin. has got its thing because every generation sees it as new. You know, the, the people that came before them don't understand their lifestyle they don't understand their model and say oh they always come up with some you know they're the they in their minds they're creating all this stuff from scratch uh so it's it's probably got some new names oh wait here's here's it. some other ones apache china girl chinatown dance fever Are those old ones dance Brand? fever uh yeah good, <laughs> good fellas great bear jackpot donnie roscoe yeah yeah <laughs> tango and cash hey i know him you know yeah that the real guy. I, I figured you did. Yeah, I mean. Well, it's rough stuff. It's, uh, like I said, it's deal. a. It was a real deal. Sorry. It's, it, it's, it's, either way, it's bad stuff. It doesn't matter what, what, what they are. Maybe my 
show research is a little dated. But no, that that's probably what's out there online. But they're still but, calling. But the fact of the matter is, you'd have to bring some fifteen-year-old in here to find out what it's actually called. Now, it's crazy. It's crazy. Yeah. Well, in uh, in doing my research for the show, I found that uh, early intervention is key. Um, as they say, overdose is preventable, and opioid addiction is treatable. Um, and there are several things to watch out for when um, abuse of narcotic is suspected, like mood swings, erratic sleep patterns, uh, changes in appetite, slurred speech, and all that good stuff. Um, when a person is concerned that a loved one of theirs may be uh, addicted or have an issue, and they're afraid to say anything, like, some people don't want to get that person in trouble, and they're actually hurting them more than they are doing any good by not saying that they're addicted or they, they believe that they're addicted to find out if they are and get them the help that they need. They're called an enabler. That's exactly right. <clears throat> it's like that commercial you broadcast on the break about, you know, don't be afraid to say something if you're concerned about the mental, mental health of someone you love. Right. You know, <clears throat> if you stay quiet, the situation will only get worse. Right. You... Intervention may, may may or may not help, but imagine the tragedy of not saying something and losing a child to an overdose, knowing that in the back of your mind you, you six, you've known for six months or a year, uh, but you were afraid to say something. Mm. You know, you don't get any second chances with some of this stuff. No, when it's when it's your child, you just got to do whatever you can or whatever you got to do to try and get them out of it, but. Yeah, be honest with you, <clears throat> a true drug addict, the um, the success rate is about ten percent, maybe. Yeah. And you know, Florida is one of the worst places. You mean as far as um, turning them around? Oh yeah. Only yeah, 10%. the chances of yeah, just ten percent of them make it back long term ever. Which is that 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 <clears throat> number in alone should be scary to the people that are listening. <clears throat> they don't want to do it, but they're going to do it. They. They tell you that I'm scared to go back out. I'm scared I'm going to die if I shoot this fentanyl, if I shoot this stuff, or if I take too much. I know I'm going to do it. But two weeks later, they're back out doing it again. They and really, like you said, they do the drug overdose. They get the Narcan, and they're ready to go again. And that's just the nature of the beast, and there's just about nothing you can do. You, you have to try and educate your kids and somehow let them know how bad this stuff really is. Not just telling them it's, I don't know how you're doing to do it, but somehow letting them see what the real deal is. Interesting interesting thing back when I was a cop, and I'm sure you saw the same thing. I'd be working in the neighborhoods where these um, crack houses were at, you know, knocking off uh, uh, buyers and, you know, making arrests whenever I could. And you'd see the little kids out there ride their bikes or whatever. Now, admittedly, some of them are lookouts, right, because they're, yeah. they're, the, they're the drug slinger baby brother or whatever right but i would talk to some of these kids and i say man you know you see how bad it is out here you've gotta you've gotta <clears throat> be aware of the dangers to you if you get caught up in this stuff and i had one little girl tell me one time she says i i, I lost my mama you know i haven't seen my mama in two years i live with my grandma and there my my mama's got a problem with it Right, and that's why she's gone. She says, "There's no danger of me getting involved in this because it's already cost me too much." 
she was like nine or ten. Mm. You know, well, there's a lot of grandparents out there raising uh, their their grandkids for exactly that reason. Yep, yep, for exactly that reason. Well, it's 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 so big, Gary. It is. It is so big. You know, and you know, I I know that uh, <clears throat> the street cops are trying to attack it at the street drug level and the street dealers. DEA has been trying for years to hit them at the top, hit them in the pocketbook, but it seems like well, none of it's really working to and that's really good, cut. And that's good that you said that. And the drug on war is not really working, like there's the war on drugs, but, but maybe we need to fight a real war on you, drugs. You, 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 you use that term now. you got to give me a minute to, Here we to go. talk about it. I Here want you go. to talk about Which it. Which one? All right, the war on drugs. Okay, Here we go. Right, let me say something else, too, before you do that. Hold that thought, Gary. Just, I don't want to lose just, that, though. No, he won't. <laughs> He's not as old as I am. Uh, <clears throat> the um, Just recently, where the Mormon family was murdered by the drug cartels yes. in yeah. Mexico. Yeah, it's terrible. And Trump, with a good heart, is talking about, well, maybe we need to go down and and with our military and help them out and kill all these drug de- Well, that's what they really need. But that's not going to happen. And the reason it's not going to happen is he knows and I know that the governor, the president of Mexico, is not going to want to do that because he's going to lose his cash cow and his payments right. and his retirement because of all the millions. In other words, they're all going to lose their bribes. Nobody wants to do this because they want to lose their bribes. And then what they did wrong is they let the cartels take over to the point where they kill everybody and anybody and everybody's afraid to touch anything or say anything. So is it a good idea what Trump had? Kind of. Maybe he spoke from the heart a little too fast because you're not going to see anything happen. But they're, they don't want him down there. The governor, the president said, oh, no, we don't we don't need your Marine Corps down there. It's okay. Well, Yeah, you do, but that, you're not going to let him. The, 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 the problem with that is, I mean, you know, the world as it exists today as far as international diplomacy and international law Mexico's a sovereign nation, right. and yeah. the minute we send troops across the border, yep. uh, good, bad, or indifferent, unless it's a black op, um, it's an act of war. Right, and, exactly. And uh, so, I mean, I, I do. So think go with what you were going to say on the war on drugs. Now, well, give me one more second because okay. I, I want to comment. <laughs> I want to continue what your thoughts there. So we saw it happen with the cartels in in Medellin right. and, and Cali. Yep. The, the cops were were powerless to do anything, right? It got worse. Cops were less powerful to do anything. It got worse. Cops lost what little power or influence they ever had, and the gangsters controlled the streets. Right. Right. You see it in Brazil all over the place. I've worked with Brazilian cops. They're some of the best in the world. They're really professionals. But there's favelas, they call them favelas, yeah. in these um, neighborhoods in Brazil that are no-go zones for the cops because huge, of the Huge, huge ghettos. Huge ghettos that it's just not safe for a cop to go into. Cops get killed every day just cross just crossing the line. Mm. So when you hear me rant and rave a little bit about the deterioration of law enforcement's ability to work in Baltimore or work in Chicago or work in L.A., that's the next logical yeah, yeah. step. Yeah. Right, is an absolute loss of control in those communities. Um, Look at Portland, Oregon; they're getting out of control already. <clears throat> Well, and my kid lives out in, in West, and, and 
the cops don't try to control it. They're almost like the Amsterdam police. Um, you know, they just turn a blind eye to the problems, and if a fight breaks out, yeah, they'll intervene. If somebody steals something, yeah, they'll take them to jail. But the, the, the very permissive attitude towards drug use. No proactive. Sales. No proactive activity towards the counter-narcotics mission at all. Hmm. And um, that's my fear. If we start to lose control in these major metropolitan areas of these communities, there's no taking it back. Right. Right. Posse comitatus, the, <clears throat> the law against using American military against American citizens, precludes the use of our military to regain control. If the cops can't control it, you're not going to send 19-year-old National Guard kids in there to right. try to do something. Right. Right. Um, if we allow it to continue to deteriorate, what we're going to have is favelas in American um, cities. Yeah. If we allow the cartels here to take over the way the Mexican cartels allowed those to continue to propagate uh, for the sake of fun and profit so that they line their pockets, we're going to have the same problem here. We're going to have gangsters controlling the streets, and there will be no coming back from that. No, I know. Oh, yeah. So, all right, so let's go to the war on drugs thing. Um, I think it was President Nixon that actually coined the term first. Might have, President Reagan used it a lot. Um, Nancy Reagan's was just say no. Well, yeah. Her. But here's my problem with the war on drugs. You fight a war with the intentions of an ultimate conclusion of confrontation. Right. With the idea that at some point you're going somebody's going to win and it's right. going to be over. The problem with drug trafficking, you know, I'm not big on, on criminalization of drug use because, like you say, no matter what you do, um, a lot of times they don't have a choice. I think it needs to stay criminalized because it's the only way poor people can get access to drug treatment. They can't afford to buy it. So if we have court-ordered systems where these people are allowed, you know, or drug treatment is facilitated, you can save 10%. Right. Maybe it's only 10%, but you can save 10 um, There's, But the selling of drugs is, there's no war that's going to stop that. That's nothing more than predation on weaker people, just like, you know, strong-arm robbery is a strong guy taking the poor guy's money. Right, you right. know, Just like, you know, elderly fraud, you know, is, is someone outsmarting some old person and taking their money. Selling dope is nothing more than a form of predation, and it has to be criminalized in a civilized society because it's nothing more... It's oh, no you're my closer. Okay. It's nothing more than someone in a position of power preying on someone who's weak. And so there is no war on drugs. There's no cessation of this. We're not going to stop people preying on one another. Right. You're, you're never going to solve the rape problem. You're never going to stop all murders. You're never going to stop all armed robberies. And you're never going to stop all drug trafficking. You just have to criminalize it and punish people who do it. The jails need to be filled with those people. There's a big outcry now because... So it's a purpose purposeful play on words to give a, a comfy feeling to people that think, making them think that there actually will. It was supposed to be a rallying cry. President Reagan had the best of intentions when he used it. It was supposed to be a rallying cry along with say, say no to drugs. But the fact of the matter is it human nature is such that people are going to, you know, try to alter their state of mind with control, with substances, right? right? Alcohol, pot, all these other things, and you have to punish the people who are 
the predators, the people who are propagating the problem, you know. So that's my thing about the war on drugs. It's not a war. It never has been a war. It's a criminal justice problem in a civilized society, preying, predatory behavior. That's where you're seeing uh, now the local police trying to track down heroin dealers when someone overdoses and dies. Absolutely. Find out who he bought that from and go get that dealer and charge him with manslaughter or homicide. Yeah, I think that's a wonderful <clears throat> idea. And take it a step further. If somebody dies of a drug overdose from pills, indict the doctor that prescribed the medication. Oh, they have. Yeah. Uh, our drug diversion detective, I believe a sergeant now, not even sure if she's still working, Lisa, I don't want to say her last name on the air. I understand. I know her, though. I know who yeah, you're talking about. you know, she's yeah. very dedicated. Very good. She got a Haitian doctor running a pill mill 25 years in prison. Yeah. I think I know who, you, who it is also. Yeah, she's the real sure. deal. She's been around since I was on the street. Yeah. and uh, She's the best. She really is the best. I used to work with her all the time. Lisa she was my undercover on my, on my drug deals. Really? On my, when I was last doing some, yeah. yeah. She did the undercover stuff. She's cool. Yeah. So, um, so Gary, with that being said, what do you think um, law enforcement's biggest obstacle is with this, with social, the opioid epidemic? Social attitudes. I mean, the fact of the matter is there's a segment of the community out there that has a very permissive attitude towards drugs use, drug use. And what, what I don't think they realize, you know, this country was founded on civil liberties, right? Right. You know, the, you should be able allowed, allowed to do anything you want to up until the point where it encroaches on the welfare of someone else. That's what the Constitution basically boils down to. Right. People say that drug use is a choice that people should be allowed to make, people on the left, people with a more permissive attitude. Um, they don't see it as Darwinism, which is what it is, right? It's the weak basically killing themselves off. Right. Um, and... People with the permissive attitudes towards civil liberties or permissive attitudes towards drug use say, well, that's okay until it's their kid. Right. Until it's their right. husband or uh, wife that goes out into the street. Then all of a sudden, why, is it law, why, isn't the cop, why aren't the cops doing something? Because we're seen as the first line of defense. Right. When, in fact, this is a very complex social issue, just like we were talking about with the pharmaceutical industry. You can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. You can't. You know, I, I know nations where they advertise drug treatment, the police do, and the people who go in never come out. Well, part of the problem with drug treatment down here, not, I only say down here is because I live in Florida down here, <clears throat> but it's a pure moneymaker now. Absolutely. They don't, although if you go up north, you're going to see advertisements on TV. Oh, drug rehab in, Royal, in Delray Beach. And they show all this beautiful stuff in the ocean, and it's like you're going on a vacation, and it's not like that at all. Trust me. Yeah. It's a scam. It and they, all they do it's Lake Worth, Deerfield, or not? Well, maybe Deerfield, uh, Delray, all those places down there. They're all just well. And now they're spreading out, you know, into neighborhoods. Oh, I know. Yeah. In the acreage. Really? There, there's homes out there that are drug rehabs. Oh, I didn't know. Halfway that. houses. Yeah. So, half half the guys that live in there are felons. Um, yeah, yeah, a lot of local communities are, are having to combat what they call sober houses. Yeah, yeah, right? exactly. And all that is is a landlord splitting a house up that shouldn't be subdivided so that 30 people can live in it. So right? he can make money. So he can make money off of it. And 
You know, here again, the, the, the question you have to ask yourself is what price are we willing to pay to save that 10%, right? If 10% is savable, um, what price are we willing to pay? But it's a complicated social issue. Law enforcement is not the only answer. Right. You know, we're just one component of it. Uh, it has to be the medical community. It has to be a, a serious issue among the academics that, that you know, solve social problems. Um, and we have to have the political will to, in, to act on all levels if we're going to do anything to stop it. Well, again, I mean, and again, we're, we're talking about the educational facilities like we did last week when we were talking about, uh, you know, people are making decisions that uh, law enforcement officers shouldn't act on, you know, minor offenses like drug and, and alcohol possession in the schools. I mean, that that to me is it's it's going backwards. It is, and that's the, that's exactly the problem. And it has been since the '60s: two steps forward, one step back. And the, but then, how do you get control of that, Gary? I mean, you got the whole. St- I mean, nobody in New York is in an uproar about this. I mean, there's not enough of. I mean, <clears throat> are there really people that just say, "Yeah, we know it's not good, but you know what? He's." He's our governor, and uh, it's okay, so we're just going to do it. I mean, is, well, is that really? They just passed a law in New York dropping the bond on dozens of charges from everything from uh, raping a minor to criminal homicide to minor things like trespassing or whatever. Um, and that's why I said, I mean, how do you, I mean. Well, we don't have the political will. We, 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 there's, a, there's a school of thought. And I'm afraid that what's going to happen is what you said um, about uh, can continued deterioration of the of the society, yeah. With the, when the cops start to it's it's the it's the first step of the fall of Western civilization. I'm sorry. Yeah. I know that sounds uh, you know like an exaggeration, but the truth of the matter is, there's a segment. Listen to the Democratic debates, right? It's Elizabeth Warren, and I'm, I don't want to get into politics. I'm I consider myself as you know financially conservative, socially responsible. I'm an Eisenhower Republican, but. Ms. Warren wants to decriminalize crime. You know, she wants to say, okay, well, there's a kinder, gentler way of dealing with people, with the predators in society. You know, we'll, we'll just, we'll come up with ways to make less predators, and so society will get better. Until she gets robbed. I don't see that ending well. Well, maybe it just has to happen to show that it doesn't end well. But then, like you said, we can never get that back. Again. What do you have next? There you go. You never get that back again. Uh, An alleged Bronx drug dealer facing nearly 100 years behind bars gave Governor Cuomo a glowing endorsement on Thursday when he walked free as the courts tried to get a jump on state bail reform law set to take effect in January 1. Cuomo for president, Jose Catano, Jorge crowned in Spanish as he left Manhattan Supreme Court without plunking down a penny in bail. Jorge, 47, had been held without bail while facing up to 96 years on charges of selling controlled substance and conspiracy, but he can now walk the streets for the duration of his trial. If he even shows up, that is. I was going to say, Viva viva Cuomo, hasta hasta luego. I'll see you later. You know, come to Mexico City to get me. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we, we, the whole problem is we put them in the position 
We vote for them. We put them in position. Somebody and, does. You know, <laughs> yeah. I'm just talking in general. This, I'm this, not, I don't want to get into the politics yeah. thing, but we all do. You know, we all vote for people that, you know, sometimes, you know, we mm, just want to scream. Well, let's talk but about we that. do that. Let's talk about here's, that for a Here's what we uh, were talking about a second ago. It says authorities have accused George Jorge of having peddled the drugs tied to the fatal overdose of a 28-year-old man at York Avenue Diner. Jorge was busted in a sting that authorities said set up after allegedly linking him to fentanyl heroin found at the scene. Ugh. And he uh, just walked out. So let, me, so let me comment. I'm going to say Go something ahead. about that that's a little maybe inappropriate. You remember back in the day when you were working that North District, um, you yeah. know, and it's just you and two other guys controlling the county? Well, we'd get a guy coming through town that we were a little concerned might might not be the best of <laughs> residents and we didn't our job was to protect Deerfield so right? you gave him the hobo express to my area and and my theory was you may not be able to stop crime but you can damn sure relocate it <laughs> and, uh, and uh, so we'd do a 1014 as we yeah went back in the day and drop them off there at 54th and federal and point them southbound <laughs> right this bail thing, as bad as it is, because, you know, I think it's just foolishness. <coughs> if nothing else, maybe Jorge will go back to Mexico and we won't have to see him again for a while because if he comes to the United States, he knows he's facing 96 years. Yeah, maybe. Relocate the crime. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. Mm. So in, in talking about the uh, medical field and everything, what about <laughs> mental illness? It's a joke between me and him. Inside joke, yeah. <laughs> okay. It's the old days. We're just yeah, that. we're just celebrating the old days. I'm glad. I'm just glad I have somebody old, some couple of guys older than me who could say the old days, and I could still feel like just a couple of years younger. You're the youngin in the room. <laughs> You're the youngster. Okay. What about mental illness? Do you see over medicating as a contributor to this epidemic? In other words, it's easy to just say, okay, yeah, he's mentally ill. Let's give him these. Drugs, make sure you take them, prescribe them, and send them on their way. What well, about? I, I think that's a great correlation to, to this current discussion. So in the 60s, it really became, the medical theory was you can't lock someone up for a mental illness, right? right? You can't incarcerate somebody just because they're mentally ill. So they opened up the asylums and said unless the person commits criminal conduct, um, you can't incarcerate them. Well, they wound up homeless, and they wound up, you know, vagrants. And you know, because if they're not medicated, if they don't have access to the necessary medication, then then they have problems, particularly bipolar and, and issues like that. Right. So we did come up with these outpatient treatment programs where people could, if they chose to, go seek their medication and try to function normally in society. The problem is when they go off their meds. We've all worked calls where they did, yeah. and um, then the police have to intervene. Right. Um, I mean, one of the leading, leading causes of recidivist occupation in local jails is people with mental health problems who have no other way to get their meds, right? So they go back into BSO, uh, and the, the nurse pulls their rap sheet. They've been in there 30 times before, and she just reissues the meds, and a couple of days later, the judge releases them. I don't know how to solve that issue because it's a good example of what happens if we don't 
deal with the problem. We, all we did was, was shift who was responsible for that. Right. And we're doing same, the same thing with the drug issue, right? There's a deep problem in our, particularly in our urban areas, or in rural America with the hillbilly heroin and the, the pills. <clears throat> we're blaming the wrong people. And, and we're not, you know, it's not the cop's fault that the situation has gone so bad. It's the drug dealer's fault, you know. Um, it's not the... You know, it's it's the doctor who prescribes medication, you know, a thousand pills of oxy, you know, to a patient that's, you know, had a minor injury. You know, right. uh, we've got to or just claims to have an injury or just claims to have an injury. We've got to take a straight faced, honest look at what the problem is and deal with it intelligently. The politicians are all. I want to digress into politics for just a second because we've become so divided in this country, yeah. right? <clears throat> and it's got to the point where if I'm on one side, nothing the other side is acceptable, right. right? Our politicians, we can't pass anything in Congress because regardless of which who has the White House, the other side resists. resists. Right. And we're not, that's not governance. Right. That's not what we pay them for, but that's the state of affairs. And we've all got our news channel from which we get our news, and the talking heads tell us what we should think, and then we re reiterate that in the echo chamber of social media. At some point, we got to say, you know what, I disagree with your politics, but we can still talk out a problem, right? And whether it's drug addiction or mental health treatment or, you know, how to get the bridge down the road fixed, we've got to take control of our country again as constituents because as a republic, we're beginning to fail. You know, as a, as, a, uh, as a knee-jerk reaction to the drug problem, the politicians have passed laws trying to fix the problem. But what they've done is they've hurt the guy, the average Joe, who goes and gets a hip operation, a hip replacement operation, and they give him three medicated pain pills. You'll be fine. You know that guy's going to be in pain for at least 10 days. And you give them three pills. Why? Well, we can't give you any more than that because that's, you know. Well, and then the guy that right. wants them, that doesn't really need them, that guy I was talking to at dinner tonight, he's the guy getting them all. Exactly. And, and that's the problem. <clears throat> that, that we throw the baby out with the bathwater. Yeah. Instead of solving the problem, which is the illicit distribution not medically necessary, because the guy with the hip operation, he's not going to be able to get the medication he needs. And, you know, um, <clears throat> um, my mind went blank, wouldn't you know? <laughs> Holy Jesus. Could carry his Alzheimer's medication oh, boy. real it's quick. It happens to me every day. My mind just went blank. I agree, all of a Gary. I agree. Whatever it was, I agree. But no. But Oh, uh, I know. Okay. Uh, the South Florida State Hospital problem, what he's saying. And that's but what I was mentally, just mentally ill guys. We have to charge them with a crime when they commit a crime. Right. It's up to the state to drop the charge or not drop the charge, right. which we know they're going to do it anyway, but <laughs> that's beside the point. It's up to them to do that part. Right. We put them in there, and the nurse gives them the well, medication thing. But the real problem is we used to have South Florida State Hospital, like we talked about right. before. They don't have that anymore. We used and to have that in Pembroke Pines, and a lot of the mentally ill people would go there. I don't know if the state just didn't want to spend the money anymore, which is probably it. That's what it came but down. that's and it gone does, now. It doesn't help. And uh, now we have nowhere to put all these Baker Acts right. and all these people. And you know what? Here's the worst part. Like the kid that shot up Parkland mm -hmm. or, the, or another kid or another kid. 
you know what you hear these people say? Well, why didn't you get him help? Well, what's wrong with you, Mom? How come you didn't get him help? Because there is no help. That's why. Because she can't afford to send him for mental health evaluation because she ain't got the money. Right. She doesn't have the resources. Right. I'm so sick of hearing that. Well, why didn't she just get him help? Oh, well, why didn't you say so? I got a phone. What's that number again? Well, even the cops can't do anything. Even if you you detect behavior that's of grave concern to you about a a young person's um, intentions to do violence— Unless you can articulate, right? You know, a Baker Act that you know articulate in a probable cause affidavit that they're harmed to themselves or others, and then what do they get? They get hospitalization for, for three, three days, days evaluation, yeah. yep. and they get turned right back out right. in the street, and that's when they which which is back. exactly what we were just talking about, and and that's what you and lo- you know that guy that I shot and killed in Pompano, in 1982, 80? Just he, he's funny. Um, his problem was that's exactly it. He was violent. They Baker acted him for the days, gave him these pills, said, here you go. Take these. You'll be fine. Well, of course, he didn't take the pills. And I ended up having to shoot and kill the guy. Right. I didn't shoot and kill the guy. The state of Florida shot and killed that guy. Yeah. And that's why I said they're ta- it doesn't help when I was they're, forced when to they're taking it. tools away from us, right. like South Florida State Hospital. There's no it's it's a revolving door it absolutely uh, is. You know, and it's and and it's doing nothing but hurting these people. It's not helping these people. It doesn't help them that you take them in for three days, you give them evaluation, you give them a prescription, and say, okay, go and go take. There's got to be continued uh, help for them. Like let them go to the state well, hospital. South Florida or State for. Hospital used to have a whole wing. Yes. Just for the criminally yes, insane. Yes, it did. And they got treatment. They got tended to. You know, it was you know. Well, and you raise a really interesting issue. Let me let me take off of that and segue off with the drug problem, okay? And bringing it all home, we were talking about how the mental illness issue relates to the addiction issue. Right now, they're de- they're basically decriminalizing drug addiction and drug sales, and they're removing they're tying our hands right. from an enforcement capacity right. under the premise that well, we'll treat it as a medical issue. We'll administer. You know, uh, methadone and will, you know, the medical community can take care of them. Well, that's not happened with mental illness. It's not, it's never happened with the mental illness problem. Right. Which is a relatively small per capita issue relative to the number of people who are addicted to drugs. Right. There's no way in the world that the medical community can deal with drug addiction as a medical issue alone. And a lot of the homeless people are now drug addicts as well. They didn't used to be, but they are now. Right. Many of them are. Drug addiction leads to homelessness. It it costs you everything, whether it's crack, meth, heroin, it doesn't matter. I know guys that have sold their family men who who got into a car accident or got hurt, didn't become an addict because he just decided he was going to start taking drugs, got pain pills or whatever, got hooked on it. He ended up selling his car out from under his family to get drugs. Mm. And I know that because we, I met him at the airport when he came down here to go to Delray Beach to get drug rehab, his last chance. I know two policemen, two policemen who got in work-related car accidents. The doctor said, well, you know, here's a, here's a note. Stay home and watch daytime TV for a couple of weeks. And, oh, by the way, here's a script for 50 oxys. Oh. All right? Cost them their jobs, cost them their families, cost mm. them their reputation, cost them mm-hmm. everything. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's crazy. 
It's crazy. And then it, it's one big circle, like you said, and it's, it you can't, you can't treat drug addiction like a medical condition, which you're well, absolutely, you can't do it. That can't be the only solution. Yeah. There has to be, there has to be a holistic whole society agreement that this is a problem for us as a nation and we're going to deal with it. And yeah, but is it too late, Gary? I mean, look how, look how far gone. It goes back to the 10% thing. If you can save 10%, save 10%. You know, if Darwinism is going to claim 90% and there's nothing we can do about it, we as a society still have to try. All right. We have no choice. And then uh, now we go back to when you mentioned uh, your concern about who would take control if law enforcement gets disempowered. So if law enforcement gets disempowered, what are the dangers faced by law enforcement if we don't get control of it? Well, there used to be a bumper sticker when, when we were young. I saw on cars that said, those who don't like policemen had best be prepared to make friends with their criminals. So if the cops aren't controlling the streets, the thugs are going to control the streets. And how big and bad and out of hand that gets. There'd be nothing left but the wolves and the sheep. Anybody guess. Yeah, exactly. And... Uh, I mean, and I always like to look to history and other nations. We like to think as Americans that it can't happen here, yeah. right? Society won't deteriorate here. I can see where it's going to happen here. Right. Well, all you have to do is look at other nations. Look at the Soviet Union in 89, right? Everybody lived off the state. Uh, you know, they had a system. They were a world power one day. And then the next day, there were no pensions. There were no laws. There were no rules. People were starving in the streets, right. and that's when you saw the oligarchy begin to take <clears throat> control. And oligarchy and that's, just, when, that's when you saw the Russian mafia take over. Right. That's just they would literally walk into a bank on the corner and tell the guy in the president's chair, I'm now your boss. I own the bank. And if he said no, the next day when he left his apartment, he was gunned down in the street. And then they went to the vice president the next day and said, I'm your new partner. I'm taking over this bank. And he said, have my chair. Everything's fine. Exactly. And that's exactly how it happened. I know that for a fact. And you can, because you worked Russian organized crime. You know what it, exactly. what it is. And, and I worked it enough to know you're absolutely right. And But there's other smaller nations that have existed. And so what, with the Russian thing. organized crime, you tied to major drug and... Well, ultimately, yeah. But you think, think about the situation in 89, like we were talking about in... in in the green room, everything was for sale in 89. I mean, they were selling submarines to the the Cali, Colombian cartels. So they could transport drugs. drugs. Yeah. yeah, a real submarine. They wanted to sell a real submarine. There was there was a story. The there was a story just recently in the news about a submarine off the coast somewhere. Well, they make their own now. Where the they empty? Yeah, the Colombians have been making. <laughs> they their got own enough money years. to make their <laughs> exactly. own submarines. <laughs> exactly. They bring in the naval engineers. <laughs> you know. The fact of the matter is world-class subs. I've got buddies that are working in Columbia right now that that's their sole job is chasing submersibles. Wow. But um, but back to the thing about, um, now I'm having a senior moment. I can't remember what I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I mean, but you, you don't have to look too far back into history to see other places where they thought it was going to be fine, and then one day it wasn't. Yeah. Right? And it becomes anarchy, as you guys like to say. And it happens fast. I hate it to think fast. that that can ha I mean, 
I'm not saying it can't. I hate. I just hate the thought that we can even think that that would happen here. I, you know, I, I would think that there's going to be enough states who are going to say, "Oh hell no, I'm not doing that." Right. But then when you get states like Oregon that wants to just, I mean, when the mayor tells the police stand down, leave them alone, and they stand there and watch Antifa beat the hell out of a journalist. And don't do anything about it because the mayor told him to stand down. Yeah. Well, that's th- that's the only thing that will save us is the fact that we have states' rights and individual entities, political entities, will continue to stand. I think, the you know, th- this do, is a complicated Do you think for analysis. one second that shit will go on in Arkansas, where I, came, where I grew up? I don't think so. No, yeah. <laughs> Hell no. Yeah. But the fact of the matter is we're not there yet, but we are lying to ourselves if we say it can't happen here. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not saying it can. I just say I just hate to think that, uh, you know, because our kids have to deal with it. Our oh, kids, it. our kids are gonna have to deal with that, and it's just. Yeah, I won't. I won't cite the historical examples that come to mind immediately, but um, there's plenty of historical examples of, you know, one day it was fine and the next day it wasn't. Well, you look at Congress. We have an anti-Semite in Congress right now. <sighs> I mean, they have Let's a whole bunch there. of radicals. That, Let's not go there. That are, Let's. You know, <laughs> Danny's, Danny's going to be blowing a gasket in a second here. Abort, right. abort. <laughs> but uh, very, uh, it was a good talk. It was. I had a very, very good talk today. There's a lot of informative. You got. You have anything you want to elaborate on, particularly before we uh, maybe maybe just wrap it up. I mean, the bottom line is, the drug addiction problem in this country has always been a whole community problem. It requires the cooperation of the medical community, it requires law enforcement, it requires the courts, and it requires the politicians to take it seriously. Um, and our enemies aren't just within. The Mexican cartels should be designated as terrorist organizations. I've got one of my former bosses that's lobbying for that in a big way. That's the only way that will and he's got some get power. cleared up. And we need to treat them the same way we do, you know, Al-Qaeda or ISIS or anybody else. They're terrorist organizations, and they're right across the street. Right. And, w- and we better finish the wall. And any and, one of and the those— The reason I'm saying we better finish the wall is because I've seen videos, you've seen videos, I'm sure you have too, of the drug cartels right across the border murdering and torturing and keeping people alive and cutting them all up and doing brutal, vicious yeah, some things. Yeah, some of those videos are and pretty guess grotesque. What? I mean, they just have to walk across the border, and they're here. Yeah. So, Arizona, do you want these guys in your house? You know, No wonder the sheriffs on the border down there are crying for so much help. There's no way we're going to 100% stop it, but to, to slow it down and stuff, yeah, I mean. But my question was going to be to you when you were talking about the medical, you know, the government, the police, everything. Any one of those, in your view, any one of those cogs missing, does it work? Or No, I mean, like I say, it's a holistic thing. The educational institutions have to be dedicated to uh, educating the kids about the dangers. You know, like I say, you wouldn't think about letting your kid out of the house without teaching them how to cross the street without right. looking for cars. Right. right? This, is, this is an imminent threat to every young person who goes to the school system here. Schools have to be involved. The medical community has to be involved. The police have to be involved. Politicians have to put money where it counts. We all have to be in this together or or it's just going to get worse. I agree. I agree. Yep. And on that note, Danny's going to be happy about this. Right, Danny? It's about time. (laughs) One other thing, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I've really enjoyed this. 
Uh, it's been great. Thank you so much. I really, again, I really appreciate you coming. It was very informative. I, I thought it was a really good talk. Um, I, I have a feeling we can talk all through the night. We could. Um, especially, you know, you bringing up old times and all that other stuff. And certain we might have to have you back, you know. But you're more than welcome to come. I know it's a long trip. When I you're know, down here already. And I know you're very busy and stuff back and forth with Miami and stuff like that. You're, you're very busy. He's a private investigator, you know. I'm sure you, you want to give out any information if anybody ever want, needs to contact you for anything or anything. My, my practice is built on um, basically supporting the, uh, the legal community. I do uh, any kind of civil litigation. Uh, I don't do family law. Um, I say way clear of that. But um, generally speaking, I'm a problem solver for people. If they Good. just call me up, um, we'll analyze their problems and see how Excellent. What, what can be done. So, Excellent. You can find me on uh, Google Business, Gary S. Kaufman. Awesome. That's my pitch. And your books are on? Amazon.com. Yes, they are. Also, Gary S. Kaufman. Yes. Great. Again, thanks, Gary. I really appreciate it. I really do. So. My pleasure. My book's on? Uh, <laughs> uh, the Nightstand. Nothing. Yeah, The Nightstand. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You know, well, I was going to write a book once about all the years inside of BSO and all the I have a book about, th but, honest to God, I have but, a book uh, three quarters of the way done. I just haven't been able to finish the last quarter of it yet. That's because you I'm don't know what I know about. <laughs> but I talk. never did do it. I should have. It's hard work. It really is. Yeah. It is. Okay. Well, I want to remind everyone, Observations is broadcast live every Thursday night at 7 p.m. Eastern on the Observation Facebook page, the Observations YouTube channel, and the Observations Twitter page. Did you know that? At observations underscore. I did. So I want you to keep following us now. I want some reviews and likes and wait till we're on iHeartRadio. Absolutely. Yeah, that's coming. So we got a lot of got a lot of stuff that's that we're working on. So there was a call from my house here just a few seconds ago, but I guess they hung up on me. They must not have wanted to talk. I hope everything's all right. Honey, yeah, I hope everything's you probably all right. Didn't realize the show wasn't off. Yeah. Aria it was probably Aria. No, because they called the podcast line. So it might have been my granddaughter wanted to say, say hello. Hi, Ari. Papa loves you. <laughs> oh, brother. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So anyway, um, I'd like to thank our guest, Gary Kaufman, for joining us tonight. Gary, thank you so much. I know we thank you enough already, but thank you. Um, it was a pleasure. I know uh, it was a long trip. I really appreciate you making it. I hope you come back and join us again one another day. Absolutely. Because it was definitely a lot of fun. Thank you, Danny, for staying late. Tell Shirley I said I'm actually I'll tell Shirley. I'm sorry, Shirley, that we kept Danny so late tonight. Danny's got a bedtime, so he's got a <laughs> just kidding. No, you can't say anything. So anyway, uh, as always, before we sign off, we'd like to honor our fallen brothers and sisters. Tonight we honor Officer Joe Douglas Spears of the Gulfport Police Department in Gulfport, Mississippi, whose end of watch was on this day, November 21st, back in 1971. Officer Spears was shot and killed by a female prisoner that he and another officer were transporting to jail. The prisoner had been arrested by the other officer on that morning for drunk driving. Officer Spears had responded to the scene to drive to the sub to drive the subject's car uh, back to the police station. After administering a f administering a field sobriety test at the station, the two officers began to transport the woman to jail.
The woman had been handcuffed in the front because of her large size. Approximately one block from the station, the officer driving the transport vehicle looked back and observed the woman holding a pistol that she was able to conceal on her person while being arrested. She shot Officer Spears, who was sitting in the front passenger seat, in the head. After a brief struggle, the second officer was able to subdue the woman. Officer Spears was transported to a local hospital where he succumbed to his wounds during surgery later that evening. His murderer pledged guilty to murder and was sentenced to life in prison. Officer Spears was a United, Navy, United States Navy veteran and had been awarded two Purple Heart medals during a tour in Vietnam. At the time, he was survived by his expectant wife, mother, two sisters, and four brothers. Officer Spears had only served one year and five months with the department, and he was only 23 years old. Jesus. Mm. Hey, Copservation fans, got a show idea or a topic you'd like to hear discussed? Instant message the show on the Copservation Facebook page, or you can email our producers directly at copservations at yahoo.com. If you'd like to appear as a guest on the show, you can send your request to schedule an appearance by clicking the Book Now button on our Copservation Facebook page. And we'll get back to you with final arrangements if you uh, just send us a little message. And as a reminder, you can tune into this podcast every Thursday night, 7 p.m. Eastern, on the Copservation Facebook page, Copservation YouTube channel, and Copservation Twitter page. Don't forget, we're off next week for the Thanksgiving holiday, so I want to wish everyone a happy Thanksgiving. Gary, Gary, happy Thanksgiving. Thank you. To you as well. Great. hope you guys have great holidays, too. Um, We'll be back. Uh, What we're going to do is we're going to resume our regular broadcasting uh, probably in the next couple weeks. We're not really sure yet because we have Thanksgiving coming up, um, and we have a lot of planning to do with the advancement of the show and different other media venues and stuff like that. So keep checking back. We'll let you know on the Facebook page when we're going to be back or and. Hopefully it won't be too long. And hopefully Rob will be back. Right? Hopefully. Rob. Come back, Rob. You're coming. <laughs> you don't like me? <laughs> you bum ya. I have more fun in there anyway. Get schmuck, take a chicken. I, I, can't wait, I can't wait to get me and Danny on the mics talking to you guys. How do you like that? Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, stay safe and God bless you.